Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. So... The term draft season is defined different ways by different people. For me, it never really ends, quite frankly. It goes all year round. But for many people, I guess, you know, part-timers, dilettantes, uh, you know, whatever term you want to use, it just began with the end of football uh, being played on the field, which obviously with the Senior Bowl having been played and Pro Bowl and the Super Bowl all having been played, we now find ourselves in what some people refer to as draft season, the the dilettantes, the part-timers, those that come and go. Uh, But I hear terms bandied about during quote-unquote draft season, and I wonder if we can get to a point where we agree on the operational definition of some of these terms. And I see I've been joined by my very reliable and extremely helpful and most importantly knowledgeable about what differentiates tiers of prospects from each other. Mr. James Jimmy Gam Coburn. How are we doing, sir? Pretty good. So every year every year that you've been doing this and let me assure you, many years before you started doing this, there are players that you hear referred to as as physical marvels, elite, uh, rare, uh, special, you know, whatever term you'd like to use to indicate this person is the knee plus ultra in terms of what they are or can be as prospects. And I'm not saying there's not a time and a place to use these terms because there, there is. Otherwise, you know, why have them if you can't use them? My issue is how they're used and when they're used. I hear people calling, I mean, remember um, Max Double X? Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, it sounded like he had a, said he had a name like a, um, like a uh, Vin Diesel character uh, from Minnesota, the sort of H-backy tight end that everyone decided to call a freak, and then he ran, you know, 484 yeah. or whatever it was. <laughs> more age production-based, though, but yeah. Right. At least, which that's what I assumed the hype was about was that he was like 20 years old and he was so productive and all this other stuff, like you know. Which is fine if somebody says he's freakishly productive for a 20 year old tight end in a myth passing offense. I would be yes, you're correct. Well, they took they productive. took the leap of. Well, they took the leap of logic of, well, he's really productive, so he must be super-duper athletic, Ah. which is what most people (laughs) don't understand, is you could be really productive and be average athlete or be an athlete. I mean, he was more of an average athlete, but, like, I'm just saying, like, you know, 
you can be really productive. Like, there's a difference between being productive and being a great athlete. And there's definitely great athletes. I missed on a rice wide receiver who was super productive, but I never called him a freak athlete. I could tell he wasn't a freak right. athlete. Mr. Dillard was just a really very polished route runner who really understood zone defenses and had good hands and was reasonably quick. But, you know, he was a non-special prospect, and I, I missed because I – partially because I really did like him. I mean, I thought Jared Dillard had a shot. And who knows, you know, different circumstances, he might have become a four-fifth wide receiver. But he wasn't ever going to be much more than that because he was a smallish, not special athlete who, you know, had the only special quality he had was he really understood how to get open in Rice's offense. And he became a favorite receiver for his, you know, uh, for his quarterbacks that he played with. And Max Williams, somewhat similar story in that he really understood where to be in that offense, and he got the trust of his quarterback. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I hear sometimes people refer to, you know, a player as elite or comparing a player to a person who you know might be a future Hall of Famer or a present Hall of Famer or a multiple-year All-Pro without that player necessarily being physically like that player or even playing that much like that player, quite frankly. So, I mean, I don't want to get into, you know, the art of making comparisons. And obviously it's, you know, whatever you see is what you see. So I'm not here to call someone right or wrong on that. But the term elite becomes almost meaningless if you call, you know, 40 players out of 100 elite. You know what I mean? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, if you if you say if every single year we had elite prospects, then they wouldn't be elite prospects. You know? Right. I mean, if every single player in the first round was an elite prospect, that would mean that there would be 100-plus elite prospects in the NFL, which is, is just not humanly possible, you know? Right. Um, the, the basic way I usually break it down for most people is 10% of every position is going to end up being a starting player. And some of those 10% are going to suck, you know, like they're not going to be good. Like they're going to be starters, but they're going to be starters that you kind of wish you didn't have, if you will. Um, And then you grow to appreciate them later, I guess, and you get worse people that come in. But, you know, 10% is pretty much guys who end up getting starting jobs for four plus years, which is something that doesn't happen that often from that 10%. You know, about twenty-five percent of that ten percent ends up being guys that we consider, you know, that we should give Campbell Soup commercials to and stuff like that, uh, or go to Pro Bowls. And then out of that, you know, twenty-five percent, there's like twenty-five percent of that twenty-five percent is where you have the guys that we would consider to be Hall of Famers and stuff like that. So, you know there's tears to this. There's definitely things that separate guys from other guys. I only make, again, a lot of the comparisons I make are usually data-based because it just kind of makes sense. Like they're, they're, when the data says that you technically can determine the upside of a player based on certain qualities, 
whether it's athleticism or a combination of athleticism and, you know, production, stuff like that, um, then you just are basically projecting what their production is going to be at the next level versus uh, what their style or actually, you know, stuff like that, you know, which you definitely could measure that stuff. It's just that people don't take the time to do it, I guess. But I would just say that that's the biggest thing about elite and that term elite is because you don't, it's a term that you definitely could do things objectively to say who's elite, but they don't do that. So it just becomes a subjective term. And then you get people who go, Oh, don't get upset about it. But I'm like, well, I, I you know, I do, I kind of have a right to get upset. You know, when you compare a guy to Ray Lewis or whatever, and I've seen what Ray Lewis was able to accomplish on paper. And I see what that guy accomplished on paper and he's nowhere near, he's not even in the same, you know, solar system in terms of what he did. I kind of get a little upset. I mean, that's that sports, but I'm just saying like that's, it's just, you know, bad to do stuff like that, I guess, <laughs> you know? So, um, but that, but that definitely is a, is a thing now is, and also just short term kind of stuff as well. I mean, uh, you know, the thing about Tom Brady which I'm not trying to turn this all into Tom Brady, but I'm just saying, like, Tom Brady's a guy who's been good for forever. Like, as long as I've been watching football, Tom Brady's been good at football. Um, you can't say that about every NFL player. You know, same thing with Peyton Manning and, you know, and other different guys, Larry Fitzgerald. You know, like, there's only a handful of guys that you could think about in the last decade that have been consistently, like, really, really good football players. Yeah, um, right. just because the guy mentioned, right? Ray Lewis yeah, is really Ray good Lewis. for 15 years. Hard to do. Very long time. Really hard, hard to, to do. do. Really hard to do that. Really and when you find do. a guy like that, or when you say a guy's going to be that, and you don't really know how that happened or why that happened 100%, it's just kind of, you know, it's just something that you really shouldn't do. Because that, that's at least what I think of. I think of somebody as an elite player. I'm thinking of somebody who not only performs at a high level, but performs at a high level consistently. He's not a one-hit wonder. He's not a guy that had four years of greatness and then it just kind of disappeared you know he's not that type of guy he's a guy that consistently at every position even running back you know look at adrian peterson adrian peterson is another guy that ever since i've been watching football he's been good at it you know um it, it, it it's just you know and of course he's gotten older now but i'm just saying like um sure it's, it's something that that's rare at that position but it's still something where you do kind of think of eliteness as what they're able to do um, in, in a long period of time for that position, I guess. So, um, but yeah, I mean, a leader is just a term that, you know, I don't want to say it's a marketing term. It's become that to a certain extent, but it, but it definitely is, is uh, something that you can measure and weigh and uh, describe some kind of, you know, put some kind of number to it, at least to judge upside and what a guy can become and stuff like that. If you look at, probabilities you can start to see you know what are the chances of a guy becoming this what are the chances of a guy becoming that and, and stuff like that in terms of projection yes and projections is another thing a lot of people project i don't mind people making projections but even a projection has to be based on something it has to have some basis there has to be some thing that this projection lands on like it's coming if it's not going to be about production and it's not going to be about actually understanding someone's physical potential based on metrics, then, then I must question 
about then what are we based about how do we how do we do this what is this you know where does this find its home this this projection if it's not based on something there has to be some i mean people some people don't like measurables at all i get that but you've got to have something what is it that you're you're how do you derive your point of comparison your and your you know, like i said even defining things like greatness or elite if you don't have something if it's not statistical it's not physical what the heck is it exactly and it's and it's more so a thing where where nobody really again nobody does what i do so a lot of times when i'm talking to you guys it's like one ear out the other kind of thing you know it's like some people some people i talk to they get it other people they don't and that's just because again it's a totally different world you're you're coming you know you're you're working from a role where you know, a guy may be good, but then you go, yeah, but there's tons of guys. Like, you know, there's been tons of people like that in the past 10 years, five years, 20 years, et cetera, um, that have definitely been successful players, lots of guys, you know. But uh, to to really say a guy's elite, or at least what the goal is, I hope, in most evaluation is to figure out who are the elite guys from the average guys. And there's nothing wrong with being an average guy, but it's no. – it's like, hey, you know, there's lots of guys that can play football, but I need to find the guys that are going to be, you know, beating the other guys more consistently. So, um, yeah. which that way I, which I don't have to you have to want, my yeah. kids out of school. We don't have to sell our house. Exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. So I mean, that that should be the goal. And if, and if that's the goal, um, and it means, as you know, you said people don't like measurables. Again, I just think a lot of times when people don't like measurables it's because they don't understand measurables. Um, they don't, they don't do measurables. They don't see measurables. They don't think about measurables. So it's easier to just kind of have the whole mentality of, well, you can't measure football. You know, it's about how much heart, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's about how much heart and dedication you have and the blood, sweat and tears. And, you know, Jerry Rice, you know, didn't need no measurables, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> Like well, yeah, maybe he did Tom, that. Tom right? Brady, Tom Brady was, you know, oh yeah, Tom physically Brady was speaking, terrible. one of the worst athletes of all time, or whatever. Yeah, worst right. athletes of all time, you know, and it was all. Which I usually tell the. It's funny, you know, all the system quarterback stuff. I, I I usually get after him by saying, well, Tom Brady, you know, was was ninety plus production uh, at Michigan. You know, basically, based on his production in college, he was somebody that had a better chance of becoming an all-pro player than everybody else. So was it the system, or was he actually a good player at Michigan? It's just that nobody really, you know, cared about it or what. You know, like I'm just, you know, there's tons of examples of guys like, and I don't even want to bring up Warren Moon, but Warren Moon's another guy where, you know, he was he played a really tough schedule, uh, you know, at Washington in terms of strength and schedule, was really productive, was basically as productive as Peyton Manning in college, um, just statistically speaking. And uh, no love, no nothing for whatever reason. Like there's tons of guys well, that are gonna get. We kind of know the reason for him. There's <laughs> reasons. I know. I'm just saying that the reasons always change, but the data stays the same. So, I mean, you, oh, you can look one. at certain things. Jim, there you. We found the Geometrics T-shirt. <laughs> I, but the, again, but the data does stay the same. I mean, it's if you're gonna judge eliteness, you have to have something to to look at um, to to kind of 
at, at the very least, again, a lot of the stuff that I do, which I try to get into people's heads, is, is I'm testing what I'm doing. Like, I'm not going to – there's tons of different data things that I've done but I don't tell people about because it hasn't been proven, you know, to be accurate, or at least it, it's not a big enough sample size. Like there's reasons why I don't really share certain things because why would I share something that I'm not confident in that I don't believe matters to projection to stuff like that. If I'm telling you something, it's because there's actually lots of data, lots of information, lots of evidence to back up, you know, the concerns or the red flags or, the positives or whatever. So um, that's the other thing I would say just about eliteness is, is eliteness is something that that is rare, but it's something that can be measured. And it's just a matter of getting people to understand that you can measure it to a certain extent. It's just a matter of figuring out all the, all the other variables that go into um, whatever it is you're looking at, you know? So like definitely personality, you know, stuff that's been floated around a lot, you know, um, is, is stuff that uh, is is there. But it, it's just about getting what you got and then showing and then looking at what you have, looking at what the results are. And if there is something that's there, you know, go on and expand on it. But, but yeah, I think in terms of eliteness, a lot of a lot of the sort of issues of eliteness is just that there's people who are only coming from a limited sample size. Uh, in, in general, I mean, draft order in general has guys that even the guys that are top. You know, even the guys that are top draft guys have only. Are guys that have only, you know, been doing this for 10 years or whatever, which is why some people who say, oh, he's the best linebacker prospect is Patrick Willis about as far back as you some 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 of these you know possibly went i guess you know um <laughs> i guess <to> certain, <laughs> i guess i'm just saying i guess they're not, gonna bring, though, up tommy, they're not gonna bring up tommy nobis i guess for some reason <laughs> yeah you know or or you know zach thomas or brian urlacher i mean every generation is gonna have that guy if you will um which was always sort of the fun thing about data work is is you don't it's it's like patterns and stuff, but it's just kind of cool when you see like oh you, you know got Ray Lewis and then the next kind of guy like that was like Ryan Erlacher and then you know Patrick Willis came around and and then Luke Keekley you know at least right now you know in the like this era or the early parts of this era you know it's been Luke Keekley so you start to see those those patterns but again once you start to see those patterns you start to see what starts to create those patterns you you start to realize that oh, there's something here, you know, there's something to actually to measure these things in terms of patterns. Let me ask you this. Have you thought about doing all-decade teams, you know, metrically speaking, on all, met, on all metrics, 60s, you know, team, on all, I, mean, I don't know how far back you go, but oh, or 70s well, team or 80s team? Or, I, have, I, have been, I have been doing that working on it anyway, but it's still a work in progress. I'm I'm into the nineties right now, just in terms of offensive and defensive uh players, but haven't gone beyond that yet. But it is something I have been looking into uh just to get because a lot of it is about testing things and retesting things. You know, looking at the different eras and getting something to compare 
you know, for example, I already did that with quarterbacks. You know, I went all the way back to uh, the 40s in terms of quarterback play in the NFL and just did that sort of thing and compare it to peers as well. So I'm not comparing, you know, Joe Montana's touch-and-intercepts ratio to Otto Graham's touch-and-intercepts ratio because it's just – you just can't do that because it's different errors. It's different um, – there's been different types of variables going to that. But if you compare guys out of a 10-year sample and you do this again and again and again, you know, throughout the decades, you, you'll start to be able to start to compare different errors and stuff like that because you're, you're working with something that – makes sense that you're comparing how they performed against their peers in that particular era. And then you can see, you know, which guys were at the top of that era and which guys were not, you know? So, um, to see like, okay, this guy was as good. He was this good compared to all of his peers. The the only issue with that though, I would say is that because quarterbacks back then there was less competition, you know, there's less teams. So there, there's Mm -hmm. technically less competition that, it does tend to favor guys that played more in the 32 team era to a certain extent, just a little, at least at the top kind of favors those guys. Um, but at the same time, it, it isn't totally bad, you know, or to, it isn't off to the point where it's like grossly off, but it's just something where guys that played in an era where there was more quarterbacks um, are going to be favored a little bit more than guys that played in eras where there was only like 16 starting quarterbacks or 28 or, you know, whatever it was. But, but yeah, that is something I've been thinking about getting into is, and, and working on is, is to go back further in terms of uh, NFL data to compare different errors and, and do stuff like that. And the main thing is just to see if there, if there's something to back up um, what I'm seeing now, because that's really what it comes down to. If this was the pattern in the nineties then it should be the pattern in the two thousands, um, and the 80s and the 70s and the 60s. And so far, with quarterbacks at least, I've seen that the pattern is the same. You know, like it's a similar pattern in each era, each decade. So it's just a matter of doing more work into other positions, and then hopefully there's similar patterns there. Because I'd love to see you do a, like a first, second, third team, you know, all metrics or all decade all metrical decade, or how I'm going to put it, team, for however many decades you could actually do in terms of finding the data. Yeah, exactly. You know, if the data's out there, then, it, you know, you can do something with it. So, um, but, yeah, for, but but uh, for the most – I think the only player, players that have issues is defense. Again, defense would probably be the only – Right, because no one cares where, about their significance, so they're not official and yeah, all that stuff. yeah. Yeah, defense is probably the only area where there would be issues to hang up, stuff like that. But yeah, I'm up, pretty sure it'd be I usually end up trying to find, um, what do you call it, uh, box scores, which are depending upon, I mean, they're not always the most reliable things in the world either, but depending upon, um, you know, which newspaper and how seriously their statisticians actually take their jobs, uh, some of them are fairly reliable and some of them are kind of, you know, jokes, but but it can sometimes be helpful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's kind of like some of the issues I've, I've been having with high school um, production is is uh, you'll have you'll have people who report, 
you know, touchdowns if they don't report interceptions or they report – they usually report the positive thing, you know. They really post the, the negative thing. Uh, but uh, I always I always thought it was kind of funny to me that, you know, it's 2016 and uh, and it's still really hard to get high school data despite – you know, mm-hmm. like uh, high school football is definitely popular. Um you know, but I, I always just thought it was kind of funny that high school data is, is the area where there's just a lack of reporting and a lack of, easy, you know, easily accessible, I guess, statistics, even with uh, big-time high school, you know, conferences and stuff like that. You know, the big time, the, the places where they, they spend a lot of money and do a lot of investment, they're still kind of lax when it comes to reporting certain things. So I always found that to be kind of interesting. Right. So, if someone's saying so and so is an elite cornerback, a term I hear thrown around quite often. If if someone's an elite corner, what things do you say a cornerback is elite? Looking at the the things you you measure. Well, if you say if you say a cornerback is is elite, um, you're basically saying that he has the physical attributes. So he's most likely you're talking about a guy that's six foot, six foot one, two hundred and you know, two hundred and five pounds or ten pounds. Uh but more more importantly, he has, you know, lots of arm length in terms of like thirty two inches or more in terms of arm length. And he also has top ten percentile or higher athleticism traits in terms of speed, quickness. Um, there's other types of things. And speed has probably been the biggest, like, indicator uh, for eliteness at cornerback um, for the most part. And, again, I usually attribute that to the fact that if if you're really fast, then you can fit into a variety of schemes easily. You know, you don't have to um, – you, you won't end up on a team where they just don't know what to do with you because of uh, – well, they just don't know what to do with you because – because if you have a man scheme and you have a guy that only runs like four six, it's kind of hard to make that work. I mean, just like the Ladarius Gunter, you know, for example, it's kind of hard to, you know, to make that work at times when you have a guy that that's slow. But that's just right. one example of, of uh, <laughs> sure. where there's issues. Just for example, I mean, this is like the main thing, which is that every single, every multiple All Pro cornerback since 1998 had a speed score of 88.25 or higher. So, uh, so we're talking about guys ask, that, yeah. I was going to say this. Let me ask this. I mean, I what, did, what did Malcolm Butler get? Now, obviously, we don't have combines. We can go to the combine. Oh. But his, his pro day numbers are mixed. Uh, yeah, they weren't good. Weren't good. Malcolm Butler was – I actually was going to do a thing on him recently because the guy suggested him. But um, – Because I, I brought him he, up to all the people that were kind of trashing Desmond King. He was like – yeah, okay. he was 44.4. Uh, 4. Yeah. In terms of I'm willing to bet that he's going to come up above that number. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think he will. Um, Malcolm, I mean, Malcolm Butler, I don't really know what to say. I mean, Malcolm Butler is definitely a guy who's a quarterback, and there's different quarterbacks that can work in different teams. But I wouldn't exactly say that Malcolm Butler is an elite quarterback just because he plays for the Patriots. 
You know, well, I'm just saying, like, he's a starter. By playing for the Patriots. He can be productive. <laughs> I mean, okay, there's tons of quarterbacks. And he gets to play, here's the main thing. He gets to play a lot of, what, high leverage? Is that the, the term they use nowadays? A lot of high leverage snaps in important games. Right. <laughs> True. Well, I mean, definitely if you run a, a type of defense where you're giving the cornerback leverage advantages, um, you know, that can help you out a lot as a corner. And you, you play in a lot of important football games. You play in the postseason. You're nationally oh, yeah, televised a lot. Right? <laughs> if he well, was definitely. the exact same dude playing for the Jaguars, I don't know if we'd be talking about him the same way. Probably not. That's true. And plus, it also helps to have safety safety help. I mean, for the most part, you can be a starter and be a bad athlete cornerback. It's just if you're talking about a guy that regardless of scheme, regardless of situation is going to be successful like basically, like you said if Malcolm Butler wasn't on the Patriots if he was on the Jaguars, if he was on the 49ers he would not be the same Malcolm Butler that he is. And there's certain players that are like that where the team kind of helps them out a bit you know, and and there's cases like that all the time. I mean, there's always going to be players that uh, are going to end up on, situ- you know, end up in the right situation and things all go right. But there hasn't been too many examples of guys getting into the right situation and becoming elite players, at least guys that we consider to be elite consistently year after year after year because of how much teams change. You know, def- I mean, teams are always going to change. Teams are going to be different. After four years, five years, teams are going to look a lot different most of the time. So, um, yeah, Michael Butler, I don't know. Michael Butler is a – I mean, I'm not saying he's a bad player. I'm just saying that he's a guy that I wouldn't necessarily say is a elite cornerback, um, if you will. But um, he is productive, at least in terms of yes. if you if you measure production by, you know, getting your hand on the ball and, you know, stuff like that. He's definitely good at those types of things. Well, he's very smart, he's very tough, physically and mentally, and he's courageous. You know, he plays the position, I won't say fearlessly, but he he has a lot of confidence, despite the fact that, you know, he's a small school prospect who had, you know, very run-of-the-mill to below-average testing. But Josh Norman's a somewhat similar story. Yeah, I you mean, know, he overcame he, so many things. He began to believe he could overcome anything. Pretty much. I mean, Josh Norman is is more of a case of uh, physical attributes. He was very similar to Sherman, with the exception that he wasn't as productive as, as Sherman was, and he wasn't as athletic as Sherman was. But he did have the similar sort of length, um, strength kind of stuff, if you will. Um, so it really just was a matter of him going to the right sort of scheme and and uh, and that kind of working as his own corner. But he's somebody that I would not really want to uh, – I mean, again, the whole Odo Beckham thing, you know, Odo Beckham was pretty much beating Josh Norman consistently, you know, anytime yeah. he faces him. It's just that he got into Odo Beckham Jr.'s head. Which, yeah, again, deeply, deeply, deeply into his head. <laughs> that's how you beat a guy like that. So at the very least, you could say the strategy is working, you know, where you know that you're going to get beat by these guys, but 
if you can get them off their game, if you get get them thinking about something else and beating you, then you can actually start to win some reps. So um, that, that's only what I have to say. In general, I, I felt like Josh Roman was pretty overpaid. But, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. if you have the yeah. right type of scheme, if you have the right type of scheme, then you can, you know, you got positives there. Um, I just always thought it was a huge risk to pay a guy a ton of money who realistically who is essentially a matchup zone corner guy. I mean, right. that's what he is. Exactly. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that isn't exactly elite, you know, at least in the sort of the Revis or the Patrick Peterson or the, you know, that, if you think of it like that, or Ch- even Champ Haley, you know, when he was younger. Huh. That's what like I that. <laughs> I hate to bring, keep bringing up guys like Champ Bailey because people, you know, it was a long time ago. But every once in a while, I hear somebody talking about, you know, somebody and saying, you know, the best cover corner or whatever. It's like, dude, what would happen if you saw young Deion Sanders or Champ Bailey or Rob <laughs> Woodson? I guess your head would just explode. <laughs> Charles Woodson, even. I mean, Charles I keep Woodson. telling these Woo. guys. I mean, we keep getting these cornerbacks in this. I mean, just in this class in particular, you got all these guys. Oh, it's an amazing cornerback class. And, this guy's elite and this guy's and that guy's elite and this and that. And I'm like, I look, I usually, again, my gauge for elite cornerback is go back and watch Deion Sanders, go back and watch Charles Woodson, go back and watch Robert, like go back and watch those players. You go, you go just Charles Woodson, even you go back and you watch Charles Woodson <laughs> yeah. and you go, yeah, yeah Marshawn Lattimore is not Charles Woodson. You know? No. As no. Tabor is not Charles Woodson. Nor is like nor is Cam Sutton. Nor is uh, who else? None of these guys. Up recently? None of them, right? Yes. Or Jarrell Revis, or Patrick Peterson, or any of those guys. So I'm not saying that they're bad cornerbacks. I'm not they're saying good. that at all. They're they're good. There's they a bunch of good cornerbacks. But I don't know if there's a single elite corner in this class. There's exactly. a bunch of good ones. So don't tell me that so-and-so corner should go in the top five because you think he's elite when he doesn't have any of the quote-unquote traits, which, you know, again, I don't like that term, but you could easily watch the film of Deion Sanders or the film of one of these other guys and go, if you want to to find out what elite traits look like, young Ben, there's plenty of places to find them. (laughs) And then after you watch those yeah, Champ Bailey and Deion Sanders and Rod Woodson and Charles Woodson and Darrell Rivas and uh, who else am I throwing into flavor? I mean, I guess that's a good good to get you started. Watch all those guys, then watch these guys, and let's have a discussion about what we did. Pretty much, you know, or even go back and watch Ty Law. Even, you know. <laughs> Why well, not? Now, there's there's some guys in this class who I think might have a chance to be as good as Ty Law. That's probably a good place to start. Like, if you want to start looking for guys that you might find in this class, that might be what you might find. I don't think you're going to find some of the other guys we named. Exactly. So I'm just saying, it, it's it's perspective is what it is. You know, it, it's all it is, really. I mean, it's, it's understanding that, you know, what that looks like, what that feels like, and then go, going from there when it comes to comparisons and like what's elite and what's not elite it, it's really just a matter of understanding you know what that is um which most people don't you know you may have 10 years where like the safety situation we have right now right i mean we went from having you know troy palomalo and ed reed and oh, all these other guys hmm. so what what do we got right now you know 
Like, we got Earl Thomas, right? But, uh, you know. Eric Weddle was kind of getting long in the tooth, I guess. But kind of getting long in the tooth. Exactly. So, Tough, you know, man. It's, it's perspective. It's hard. <laughs> I wrote an entire article about the crisis at the safety position. I mean, we are struggling, and now people are just finding unathletic corners and saying, let's move them to safety because they'll be terrible. They'll be terrible. What is wrong with you people? Uh, uh, And, or, you know, tiny linebackers. Let's move tiny linebackers and slow corners to safety and see what happens. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's, oh, oh, God. I mean, if there, if ever there was a time to change the way you think about building out the safety position, this would be that time because there is more bad things that happen to safeties now than ever before. Because you can't do really bad things to receivers running over the middle uh, and tight ends are giants and run faster than they used to and you've got RPOs and you've got all these things that put safeties in a bind. Like that's there are whole teams that build what they do around trying to embarrass safeties. Yeah. Whole teams that, that if you want to build, really break down Chip Kelly's whole modus operandi, it's about making safeties' heads explode. Hey, look over here. Oh, look at that. Hey, what am I doing over here? And it's, oh, something else is happening that you didn't see because you're busy looking at this Chip Kelly, you know, doodaddly, woo, you know, uh, whatever it is, exotic smirk mouth or whatever he calls his offense. Uh, it's all about getting the safeties to watch stuff that isn't really happening. It's a difficult time to be a safety champ. And then there's a tendency to not want or to act like elite athletes should need not apply at the position, which I, I just can't explain to people strongly enough how that's while there might have been a time you could get away with putting, you know, guys like uh, uh, David Fulcher, you know, who was, you know, touring 38 pounds of fury, but, you know, clearly was not awesome in coverage. Or uh, Roy Williams, who he's the guy that sort of watched the changing of the guard. I mean, when he came into the league, a touring 23 or whatever he was, and then he's kind of got a little bigger after that, but strong safety. He was he made a couple of pro bowls right out of the box and then the game changed. He became a dinosaur in record time, Jim. Yep. That's definitely true. And so now when I hear people acting like you don't need to be an elite athlete to play safety at a high level, including people who claim they do metrics. Well, they don't understand how to metrics or I should say that they have a very limited view of what data work like the basic way I would put it like this is safety is a position where you definitely don't need to have 
great all-around athleticism in that you are top 10 percentile explosive and you're top 10 percentile fast and you're top 10 percentile flexible, although it is helpful if you are those things. But it is but a position then, where – but look at who the best safeties in football are. They're all really athletic. They're Eric Berry. They're Earl right. Thomas. Yeah, but <laughs> they're Eric. Lowe. But what I'm what, but what I'm trying to say what I'm trying to say is, is like this. What what most people don't realize is, or maybe they do. I don't know. But when it comes to the safety position, like like take multiple all pro free safeties. The threshold for multiple all pro free safeties in terms of explosive lower body strength, mm-hmm. which is vertical you know, vertical and, uh, you know, broad jump, uh, is 33.48 out of 100. And this is for free safety, not for safety, which is right. relatively low, you know. I mean, it's more, you know, again, it's below average explosive lower body strength compared to the peers. But the all-pro speed score for free safeties and strong safeties in general is 85.80. You know, every single all-pro safety had at least 85.8 in terms of speed score. So you don't need to be the most explosive player, but you definitely have to have speed. And you definitely have to have, you know, flexibility as well um, for those positions, which is why things like three-cone short shuttle uh, are big indicators for for strong safety and free safety in terms of, you know, eliteness or, or... stuff like that. So I would just say that, that some people would say that, well, you don't need athleticism for safety. Sure. You don't need great all around athleticism, but you do need certain athletic traits to make that work, which I don't know why it hasn't evolved to that point yet. I don't know, but that the fact that athletes are different and some athletes are fast and some athletes are, you know, explosive and other athletes are, you know, flexible, but, that's just kind of how I view the world. Well, other people view the world by taking all those numbers I just said and throwing them all into a blender, then popping out one number for every guy. And, and then, then mixing in stuff like arm length. And, and hand uh, size yeah. and height and weight. Even though if you right. were to look at height <laughs> and weight individually, you would see that there is no correlation for height and weight at safety. Yeah, right. In terms of free safety, so most of the best free safeties have not been huge. I mean, no, there's the occasional exception, but most of them have been five ten five eleven. We haven't had we haven't had the the Seahawkness the Seahawkification of the free safety position. It has not exactly right. even the even well. the Seahawks free safety is five ten and three eight. Colorado was five nine and three quarters. Ed Reeves. Ed Reed was five eleven and a quarter. Um, uh, Weddle five eleven and three eight. Right. Um, uh, right. Uh, so there's no correlation. Uh, uh, five ten and and uh, five eights for uh, for uh, Eric Berry. I mean, I don't know. Is there a six footer amongst the top <laughs> Um There's some guys who are you know five eleven and change, but I don't know. If there's anybody sure. who's over six feet tall. No. Yeah, but so it's clear again, that height is not a big deal. That's reason. Fundamental understanding. It, it's, it's, again, the reason you look at variables individually is because you're trying to see if there is something there to to make that variable be important. If there isn't anything there to make that variable important, then why even notice it, care about it, 
put weight to it or at the least not put proper weight to it, you know, because if, if you're basically giving weight to height and weight, if you're giving weight to that with the same amount of weight as like a 40, then you're going to get bad results because the 40 is going to give you, like I said, 80, you know, the vast majority of all pro safeties were 85.80 in terms of speed score where height and weight, there's not much of a correlation there at all. Like it's, we're really talking about bottom 10 percentile in terms of that sort of thing. So you're just going to make your stuff less accurate if you do that. And you're not even really going to, you know, get the tools necessary to find those guys, you know, to really pinpoint on what exactly the variable is to find the next special safety uh, or elite safety or whatever. Um, well, okay, and let's this, get into the production yeah. side of it. The, the top safeties in the league, how did they produce while they were collegians? Well, they produced with, and I know it's controversial, at least on draft order, solo tackle market share, interception market share, and pass selection market share. Okay, so Those where are the where they three big the benchmarks? Well, the benchmarks for I, I'm starting to name things now, but I call it MSA, which is okay. market share, shrink the schedule, and age. So MSA. But based Got on it. that, which I did, uh, the highest for, for, for that, so it's basically, again, it's, it's production plus what schedule they face and how old they were, uh, the – the All-Pro and Pro Bowl MSA was 82 or higher since 1998. Um, that's kind of where that falls. The only thing I could say individually on an individual basis is that every single multiple All-Pro free safety was in the 98 percentile or higher in terms of pass selection market share, while strong safeties, it was the opposite. They were in the 98 to 99 percentile in terms of solo tackle market share. So, but... There's a lot of, again, but there's a lot of differences. Like I said, strong safety, strong safety and free safety to me are almost like completely different types of animals, you know, at least to me. Like they're, they're different sizes. They're, you know, strong safeties are bigger. They're usually more explosive. They, you know, they hit things, you know, like they, they do stuff like that. The enforcer safeties are different from the free safeties. I'm not saying that right. free safeties don't hit people. I'm just saying that they're different. You know, they're different right, things. Right, right. That's two different I mean, things. You know, it it's two different positions for a reason. Although uh, there are right. some teams where their systems claim that they essentially are going to put the same position, you know, boundary and field. They'll sometimes do with safeties or whatever. But functionally, on a football field, there comes a time <laughs> when a safety has to do certain things. And there's one that you'd rather have trying to stay with, Julie, with Julian Edelman. And there's one that right. you'd rather have trying to bring down Le'Veon Bell by himself in a hole. Exactly. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, I wouldn't really say subtle differences, but there's, there's differences. So, and style and playing stuff like that. I would say for the most part, people really love uh, strong safeties more, enforcer type safeties, because they like big hits. And if you're like the ball skill guy, then you'll like the other sort of thing. Although ball skills doesn't really – that's the thing, too. It's just because you have ball skills, it doesn't really mean much if you don't tackle people. But 
for the <laughs> most part, every single safety <sighs> that was good was able to tackle and was able to get, you know, they were get, able to get their hands on the ball and they also were able to, uh, you know, do a lot in terms of turnovers and stuff like that. And that's with every position, strong safety, free safety, et cetera. It's just that there was, it has different ways that they uh, produce. But for the most part, 80 percentile or higher in terms of that one metric um, for every single all-pro, pro-bowl guy, it's a pretty high standard. Um, it's not as high as I wanted to get, which is something, you know, I'm still working on. But at the very least, if I narrow all the safeties down to that area, which in that one area you have every great safety you could think of, the Weddles that we mentioned, the Earl Thomases, uh, you know, the Eric Berries, the Troy Palomalos, the Ted Reed. If I can narrow all those guys to that one area, you know, then I, I'm doing, you know, that, that that's something to pay attention to, I guess, when it comes to the safety position. But Right. If every yeah. single great player at a position hits a number, that's a number I feel I need to know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> pay attention to. Or at the very least, if you're going to say that this guy's going to be the next whatever, he should hit that number too. Right? I mean, I would so, that brings me – well, okay, sorry, go ahead. I'm just saying, I would I would assume if you're going to say that a guy is going to be the next whatever, then you want to at least check to see if he hit the same number. Or, or you know, if we're talking about traits, that's, again, traits, 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 traits everywhere, traits all day. You know, give me those traits. This is the same as traits. It's just it's a trait that you can actually measure and weigh and test, you know. So that, that's the only thing I would say is, is that it's kind of like that when it comes to, uh, to to safeties or any players. If you're going to say a guy's going to be the next whatever, then he should at, at the very least test similar to that player in terms of the traits that are on paper. So let me stay with that for a moment. Amongst the guys who are in this draft class, whose numbers most resemble amongst let's start with the safeties then most resemble those guys, the the Reeds and the Berries and the Weddles and the Earl Thomases in terms of production. Right. Um, it's actually kind of a sad, sad thing to, to bring up. But a lot of the guys that, that people have as the top safeties didn't hit these numbers, so uh, it's not a that's not a wink or whatever, but maybe a, a fake wink. But yeah, in terms of the guys that actually hit all the numbers similar to those other guys, Jamal Adams is one of those players um, who who hit that area. Malik Hooker. Uh, Tedrick Thompson, Josh Jones, Nat Jerry, Quinn Blanding isn't in the class, so, you know. Um, Justin Evans, uh, Leroy Clark, Trickle Peppers, Luani, oh, Shalom Luani, you know, Washington State. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. Marcus Williams from Utah. Uh, and Monte, yeah, Monte Nicholson, yeah, that guy. He's, he's there, too. Uh, Nat Gaines from UTSA, Zach Edwards from Cincinnati, DeAndre Singleton from Duke. Armani Watts is not in the class, uh, but he's there. Fish Smithson from Kansas. 
And that's really about it. That's all the guys. So in terms of the guys who hit that one number, um, so there's a, there's a good deal of guys in there. Yeah, I mean, that, to, to me, qualifies. I mean, I, I don't know what this how this compares to other years, but that's to me, this feels like a, from what you told me, like a pretty good safety class. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's one of the things that if this, <laughs> like, it's kind of bad to do this, but if I was just be like, all right, let me give you the top ten safeties with this metric, the first one would be Sean Taylor from Miami, you know, then it would be Morgan Burnett, Dion Buchanan, Raheem Moore, Dante Whitner, Eric Berry, Earl Thomas, Troy Palomalo, Jamal Adams, and Malcolm Jenkins. So if you really like Jamal Adams, you would look at that and go, that looks pretty good, you know, yeah, in does. terms of guys that, that are around him, um, even though I think there might be some things athletically that might get, you know, fixed, if you will. Because, again, the production isn't just – it's one variable amongst many variables. There's different things that go into it. But in general, yeah, I would I would definitely say that if you're basically looking at all this stuff and going, okay, what do these guys have potential-wise, um, there's a lot of potential based on uh, what they did on paper from a production standpoint uh, and from, you know, all the other sort of stuff. The athletic stuff will help kind of differentiate guys because, like I said, there's different thresholds for different positions. But for the most part, I think, if you just look at it on paper, there's a lot of potential for a lot of different guys. It doesn't matter if they test the same as athletes, which is where things get funky every year. You know, guys don't really test as well as they thought they were, and then, you know, they go from being a guy that everybody's hyped as a first-rounder to being a guy that they wouldn't draft anymore because of whatever reason. So, which I always find kind of odd sometimes. but Because usually it's not that bad. Usually – when people complain about athleticism, there's it's not as bad as they claim it to be sometimes, I guess what I'm trying to say. But it just depends on what you're using, I guess. Using the same sort of thresholds that we just used to figure out the safeties that have the best chance. Going back to the corners, tell me about the corners in terms of who – most resembles those multiple-year all-pro guys using that same sort of... Right. Well, I mean, for them, like, passes defense and... Uh, right, right, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing I'd say about cornerback is interceptions is, is not a very... Uh, it's not very good at predicting stuff. Um, interception market share anyway. So... Because of that, it's, it's not that it's bad. It's just it isn't as good as, like, pass deflection and solo tackle market share at cornerback has a, about a 69 and above area for multiple guys. Interception market share is more about 34 or higher. So I don't really use it because of that reason. It's not to say that there isn't something you can get from interception market share. It's just it's a lot like touchdowns at offensive positions, you know. There's certain guys that, will get inflated even though they didn't really contribute that much to the offense. You know, like if a fullback gets like 17 touchdowns, right, and he doesn't really contribute much other than they get into the goal line and they give it to the fullback, like, you know, there's there's stuff like that that kind of – I'm not going to say it's similar to pieces of backs, but, yeah, when it, com- when it comes to cornerbacks and all pro cornerbacks uh, and pro bowl cornerbacks, the MSA for that position was 78 out of 100. 
is the score that you're that you're looking for with that particular um, you know, data thing. And the cornerbacks who hit that number in this class were guys like Brad Watson from you know, Wake Forest, Xavier Crawford from Oregon State, Nigel Tribune from Iowa State, Jordan Lewis from Michigan. Um, Jalen Dunlap, I don't think, is in this class from Illinois, but he, he was another guy who was like that. Trey White from LSU, who keeps getting put to the Raiders there. Corn Elder, uh, Breon Borders, a guy that you like a lot is here. Lance Austin, Jared Collins, Arian Penton from Missouri, Marshawn Lattimore from Iowa State, Jeremy Reeves from South Alabama, Justice Nelson from Texas Tech, Cam Sutton, Desmond King, Jamar Summers, Darian Hicks, Jadobia Woozy, Ryan Lewis, Marlon Humphrey, Jordan White is not in this class, and Darius Allensworth, who I think is in this class, but I don't, I'm not sure. But that's all the guys that at least were in the area of, um, you know, Pro Bowl to All Pro, you know, production. Once again, I'm just basing this on. That sounds like a lot. Um, that seems that seems like a really strong class, Jim. Yeah, I mean, it, potentially. Again, athletic data will have to factor in, you know, to, to different things. But if you're just talking about guys who have the potential just on, pay, you know, based on the production stuff, it, it, it's a lot of stuff. And another guy that I, I yeah, I don't think Will likely is in the class, but Arthur Mallett from Memphis is. So he's another yeah. one I'm of the guys that like that too. So. Yeah, yeah those guy, are guys who hit the area where, because this is the area that I actually expanded on a lot where I added guys like Deion Sanders, Sam Madison, Ty Law, uh, you know, guys like that. And who's the other guy? Troy Vincent, I think. Yeah, that's the other guy. Yeah, that's, that's a guy I'd like to. Uh, I hope he gets invited to the combine. I'll have to check to see if he has been. Because I'm very intrigued by him, I've liked him on tape. Uh, I've, I think he, he's a little skinny, but I like how he approaches tackling, which not every corner seems to relish. Uh, he seems to be pretty proactive, pretty interested in making tackles. Uh, seems to know how to cover. Seems to understand route concepts. I was interested to hear Brad Watson's name, another guy that, like uh, Breon Borders, I think most people aren't very high on, but I think he has a chance. Now, once again, she said athletic testing will, you know, sort a lot of this out. Oh, yeah. I mean, I like I like Watson, um, you know, a little bit. I would say the big, if you're talking mainstream name, right, to pick out would be Jordan Lewis, Trey White, you know, Corn Elder, would probably be the bit or Marshawn Lattimore because he seems to be the flavor of the month. Um, but those would kind of be the biggest mainstream guys or Desmond King as well. But th- those for the most part are guys that if they do test really well as cornerbacks, then you might see a big bump to them possibly or may not, you know, who knows. But it, it definitely is something to where – there's not going to be a ton of um, – I mean, there, there's definitely guys in this class that have a lot of length, but when it came to, like, the Senior Bowl and the Shrine and all that stuff, 
there was only like four guys who had 32 inch arm length. Um, so the Seahawks aren't going to be too happy with this class, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So, unless there's a lot of underclassmen that have really long arms or guys that didn't go to the all-star games. Got it. And it looks like it'd be a really good class for those that are looking for the, the slot corner, right? The, I mean, your third corner is a starter right. nowadays. You know, it means playing 62 point something percent of the snaps for most teams. Basically, five plays out of eight You nowadays, you've got your third corner, your slot corner, whatever you want to call them on the field, which is, you know, for those who don't study mathematics, that's more than half. So that player is super important nowadays. And I'm interested to see how many of the guys that we're talking about end up becoming that. I think they might. I mean, you know, Jordan Lewis is definitely a guy that I think might might get made into that, but would do well, you know would do well if he did that. Cornell or, um, you know, Trey White. I know I get flack for this, but I think he's a better slot corner than boundary corner. But I don't know. Because he does he does move well in the slot. It's just my issues with him is tackling at times. But um. You know, and of course, Pitton, too, is another one of those guys kind of like that. But, um, but yeah, like, slot corners. Another thing, too, I always find that's funny, Bill, is a lot, like you said, with safety, if a cornerback is 5'9", it's like, oh, we're going to move you to slot. You know, it's like it's like the only thing you need to be a slot corner is to be 5'9 or 5'8", and I always kind of laugh at that. <laughs> that isn't the only thing you need to be a really good slot corner, you know. Every slot receiver needs to be five ten and under. Every slot corner, you know, five nine and under. Yeah, I, 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 I understand how it happens, and even to a certain extent why it happens. But Rondé Barber would like to let people know that it's possible. Jason Barrett would like to inform individuals around the world that you can actually play on the outside if you are less than five foot ten. Daryl Green would like to remind people. Uh, he played the vast majority of his career long before the slot position sort of underwent its revolution, whatever you want to use, where it became, a, like I said, the slot corner became a starter. So he played on the outside for basically 20 years, Jim. 2-0. 20. That's 2 times 10. And started and played at a super high level for, I'd say, a good 16 of those 20 years, Jim. He was one of the best corners in the league for 16 of 20 years. That's about 80% if my math is right. He was in the top seven or eight at his position for 16 out of 20 years. And he was five foot nine. And about 170, so what day of the week, what month of the year? Somewhere right. between about 173 and about 177, depending on when you caught him. True. But the one thing I could say about that is, is basically what that says is that there's traits to the position that you aren't paying attention to. You know, it's kind of like Jason Verrett in the sense right. that 
there was other people that were taller than him and had longer arms than him, but it didn't matter because he was better than them. Like, you know, <laughs> if if you're going to say a guy is better than Jason Verrett, he has to be better than Jason Verrett. He can't just be better than him because he has physical attributes that are better. You know, and always that always bugs me. I'm just being honest, you know. Well, this is when, where you would think the Just Watch the Tape people would be on the same side with us because if you watch, they weren't just on watch the same the tape, side. They were like, blows my well, mind. what's he going to do? What's he going to do when he covers Calvin Johnson, huh? You, you Calvin Johnson, him, it's like, it's going to be over, man. My counter to that is like, who's going to cover Calvin Johnson anyway? Like, <laughs> who, who are you going to throw out there? Who's Remember Mike Rumpf, 6'2 and 5'8", or whatever? How do you do against anybody, but, you know, let alone Calvin Johnson. Um, who's the other super tall corners? Oh, how did how did uh, Stanley Jean-Baptiste do against Calvin Johnson? Or not really good. anybody? No! No, no, it did not work out well at all. It was terrible. It was, it was really unpleasant tape to watch. And he didn't stay on Mr. Johnson very long, because it was, it didn't work out at all. When when I remember when a couple of 2013 maybe um, when we got to see the much ballyhooed um, Mr. Jean Baptiste face off against Kelman Johnson, the guy he was brought in to stop, he didn't stop him, Jim. He didn't particularly slow him down. It was. It was it was not tape you would want to put at the top of your resume reel if you were Stanley Jean Baptiste trying to get somebody interested in bringing you back into the league because he's currently available for anyone who wants him. In case you're wondering. So yeah, I mean I certainly understand the allure of. Um, you know, the quote-unquote, you know, gigantic big um, corners and whatnot. I certainly see why people get excited about that because theoretically you're taking back this advantage that the the big receiver has garnered just by being big because, you know, well, look how big he is and who's going to cover him and He's to this for that and to that for this other player. And, you know, I, I I understand the theory. I mean, it's hard not to get the theory behind it. But the bigger issue is how many really, really, really big corners have been good at covering people? I mean, I don't know how else to put it. They, they've tended to struggle at covering people. I guess Sean Smith has right. been reasonably successful. Well, it comes back to a guy looking the part but not playing the part. You know, like Sean Smith, right, is, is Raider. And Charles Woodson brought this up, too, which is good for him, you know, good, good for the vet, um, you know, retired vet. Uh, he was basically like, man, you paid Sean Smith a lot of money, and he didn't really do a lot, which is true. But that's Sean Smith. Mm-hmm. He's always been that. He's always, <laughs> He's always been that. looked the part. He's tall, he has long arms, you know, all that kind of stuff, but doesn't play the part. You know. Um I see a bit of that with Xavier Rhodes on the Vikings, you know, where people are like, Oh, Xavier Rhodes is a tremendous, you know, cover corner guy and I don't just, really see him just covering. Like, you know, he's, he's being discussed. 
Right. He's being discussed as a top five corner in the league right now, but Jim, in case you're wondering. I don't see him covering people. I see him going to his own, you know, a lot of zone concepts, a lot of tackling what's in front of him and stuff like that, but that's not covering people, you know, and man coverage. Like, that's – and he does look the part. He's tall. He has long arms. He tested more like a safety, though. In many ways, he tested kind of like Justin Gilbert. But, I mean <laughs> – but does being really tall and really big and having long arms, I mean, that would probably be something that'd be great to have in like the seventies, but now, you know, like, well, he can definitely you speed up wide receivers, but it's I'm funny you should mention that. Cause I was just having a debate about Everson walls, right. Who ran about four, eight and right. uh, yeah. had, a, had a, had a nice long career. And some people think he should be in the Hall of Fame, um, you know, borderline. I guess he's a borderline Hall of Fame candidate, or was. Uh, he's now off the ballot. It would take the seniors to me to put him in. But here's my thing about that. While I agree you would not play a – no matter how good his technique and how long and strong he is, you would not play a 4-8 corner – um, you know, out in a man-heavy, go get him, you know, just go out there and stick with this much superior athlete kind of situation. Who would do that? That would not be something wise. But I'm, I've come by here to tell you, first of all, a lot of guys who are in this league now aren't as fast as you think they are. They, they, were, they were as fast however many years ago. I don't know how fast some of these guys are now. Uh, what, what do you think William Gay would run right now today if you just put the clock on him? I'm thinking four seven. Four nine. Maybe, maybe less. Four right? Eight. Exactly. Maybe, right. Maybe four eight four. I don't think people understand. There are four eight corners playing in the league right now. <laughs> it's, it is happening, people. Are they great? No. But they're doing it. <laughs> they're getting paid to play cornerback in the NFL right this very second. And the veteran combine was a real eye opener, which I think is why he got rid of it. But um, it was a real eye-opener as to what six, seven years does to and the body. To the body, right? It's, you know, it's, these guys aren't four, three, four, four, seven, six, eight years in, guys. They are not. I promise you they aren't. And... These guys find a way who, once they've lost, and that, which is why you want to have a certain amount of cushion. That's why you do want a guy to start his career not being 4'8". Because right. you don't want him to, you well, want to be 4'9", six years you know, later. <laughs> it's always a baseline. It's always, it's, it's why a lot of people go, well, that doesn't matter because, you know, they're going to get less effective or whatever. I'm like, yeah, but it's it's a baseline. You know, it's basically figuring out, you know, how long they can last, um, barring major injuries, you know, uh, in terms of what they can contribute, you know. Because, you know, Chris Johnson, right, he was super, super fast. He ain't super, super fast anymore. He's still fast. Right. You know, still pretty right. fast, he's but still fast. He's, still, he's not he's still running 4-2-5 anymore. You know? No, no, he's not. He's not running 4-3 anymore. He's probably in the low 4-4, which is still plenty fast. I mean, he still outruns people on a regular basis because, once again, Football players 
are not as fast as you think they are. Most of them, at least. The guys you see at the combine and who, you know, tear it up, those guys are, once again, some of those guys are, are freaks. They are very, very, very fast. But if you test those same dudes again at 30, <laughs> if they're still playing, you're going to get different results, I guess. Like I said, that's the... That's why I thought the veteran combine was so fascinating. I loved the the veteran combine. I, I like I said, I could see why they've gotten rid of it. I think people were getting freaked out by the numbers that were coming back, and I think people just don't realize, like I said, what if you were to retest everyone, like mandatory every six years, we just or whatever we retest everybody. First of all, the NFLPA would lose it. It was mine because so many dudes would have trouble renegotiating their contracts or getting big deals. It's like, we can't sign you to the max deal. You run 4-9 now, you know? <laughs> you know, so that's, that would happen. Uh, so that, that's one reason I'm sure the NFLPA would not want to see it put in where, you know, every six years we just recombine everybody. It would be fascinating, though, to see what the numbers would be because I think people would be shocked. Actually, I think you'd see some good bench numbers and guys, you know, get stronger. Uh, though some wouldn't. I mean, some would suffer a bunch of injuries that would probably sap a little bit of strength too. But I think some guys would test, test much better strength wise, uh, just maturing and then, you know, all those years of the NFL weight training program, blah, blah, blah. I think you'd see just some guys in terms of maybe being more efficient might run some of the drills a little better. But I think, like I said, there'd be shock and amazement at how many guys don't run 4-4 anymore, <laughs> you know, six years in. How many of those guys you thought were flat blazers are no longer 4-4 guys? How many of those guys would be 4-5, mid-4-5, high 4-5, low 4-6s even? Some of those guys that you thought were just blazing fast and maybe even used to be blazing fast, you know, and then all those 4-2 guys become 4-4 guys and all those 4-8 guys are 5-flat guys and you know, add on, infinitum. But, yeah. So we sort of figure out safety quarterback. Now, for linebacker, people use different terms for different types of linebackers. You know, right. people want on, on ball, off ball. Uh, you, you use the term pursuit. Pursuit. Uh, right. Um, the, opposite of a pursu- the opposite of a pursuit linebacker is a what linebacker? A rush linebacker. Okay, got it. Well, whatever yeah. terms you want to use, let's start with the quote-unquote pursuit linebackers, inside linebackers, right. uh, whatever term. What guys that tackle people. Guys who tackle people, right, who aren't necessarily quarterbacks. So the guys who tackle the other guys on the field, What? first of all, what things separate the the good from the great you know, the great from the elite, whatever it is, what numbers are those and what thresholds are in place for those guys that are elite? And then second after that, who are the guys that most resemble elite amongst the class? Right. Well, in terms of, uh, you know, pursuit linebackers, uh, which I just like the term because, again, it's you're pursuing. I mean, you know, I don't know. It makes sense to me more than off-ball because off-ball yeah, is like – off ball. What the heck is that? You know, oh, we're off the line of scrimmage. We're off the LOS. I mean, you know, the pursuit, pursue what they do. The guy that 
it's the it's the guys that are the great ones are around the ball all the time. You know, you know they pursue they're pursuing. But um, right. yeah, when it comes to that position, it's the one position where it had the highest threshold of all, which was the sole tackle market share. Um, and again, regardless of scheme, I know people hate that term, but I'm going to keep using it. Regardless of scheme, right? Whatever the scheme was, doesn't really matter. If everybody hits the same number, then, yeah, it doesn't matter, obviously. It doesn't doesn't really matter, obviously. Because if it did, then I would not say that term. I wouldn't say it. If there was multiple all-pro linebackers in the low end, and then I did some digging and found out it was because they were in a scheme, that would be something, right? But I didn't have to do that because I didn't have to do it. (laughs) You know, why would I do that if I don't have to do it? well, I would have to do all that extra work. I mean, I'm not saying it would be bad. I'm just, whatever. Uh, when it comes to that position, 91% or higher is where solo tackle market share in terms of multiple all-pro guys. And, again, the list is Navarro Bowman, Zach Thomas, James Ferrier, even Keith Bullock, Lance Briggs, Patrick Willis, Brian Erlacher, Ray Lewis, Luke Keekley, Lamonte uh, David, if you think he's one of those guys, which I, I think he is. But, you know, if if you want to – just any kind of pursuit linebacker guy that you think of right. that was really good in the last right. well, he was with all those guys um, in that all area. Them. Bobby Wagner, even. C.J. Mosley, and that's the other thing, too. I had all these Alabama people going, well, C.J. Mosley was in Alabama's defense, and how good was he, right? You know, And I'm like, well, he was in – he was 93 – percent also tackle market share and then they go oh, really that's really good i'm like yeah because like you know <laughs> it doesn't matter what team you're on either like if you're on nope. a really good team or a bad team or, how are you going to stick okay. out in the nfl how are you going to stick out if, in the nfl with all these great right, players if Ur- you can't if even Urlacher, stick out at your own team right if erlacher and and mosley you know can all hit that same number is ray lewis who's on a uh, that's one that makes you crack and up. All of famers. People on bring that up thing. the whole. People try to bring up. Try to bring up the talent thing. Was that Dude, Miami, Ray Lewis, Ed mm-hmm. Reed. I mean, look at the list of dudes who are on that team. Antrell Roll. Um, God, who else? That team was ridiculous. Uh, it was ridiculous. God. And yeah, uh, what's his and name? The other thing um, too. Oh, which uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to remember. They had a uh, Macintosh. Was that his name? Yeah, the, Macintosh. They had, a, they had a couple of linebackers drafted off that team. They had a bunch of defensive backs drafted off that team. Was Philip Buchanan on that team? Yeah, I know Marley no, I, was on that team. You know, right? I'm not sure. If yeah, that team was just, right. Yeah, that team was loaded. Uh, was what I was trying There's to a lot of guys. There's Warren Sapp. There yeah. was tons of guys. Like, and they played a relatively tough schedule. So, like, all I'm trying to say is. This whole, well, you know, the team like his numbers, his numbers suck because he's on a team with a lot of guys. Whatever, you're ridiculous. <laughs> it's never happened. It hasn't happened. If it happens, you know, I mean, that's all you really have to tell me. It's never happened before, but I just know it's going to happen in this case. That's all you can really say. To me, <laughs> which is essentially like saying that unicorns are real. I know they're real. I'm just waiting on scientists to prove that it's real. You know, which is ridiculous. Right. It's, it's like dumb. Right. Like, if you believe in Bigfoot, there's no proof. Right, right. You know? Right. Believing in Bigfoot, 
Scientists scouting unicorns. Right, we're scouting unicorns. Is what you're talking about? Pretty much what you're doing. Yeah, because <laughs> it doesn't exist. You know, it's just not. It's, but but the other breakdown, just to you know, throw this out there, the other breakdown is when it comes to Pro Bowl linebackers, multiple Pro Bowl linebackers, guys that had at least three Pro Bowls in their career, which is another rare thing to happen, um, was 75% taller or higher. And again, this is for the Lofatutufus, the Derek Johnson from Texas, probably a better example, Jonathan Vilma, Al Wilson, you know, those types of guys, Sean Lee. Of course, Sean Lee's had a bad time, but I'm just saying, you know, Jared Mayo, Jamie Collins, right, from Southern Miss. Carlos Dansby, right? Mr. Dansby, John Beeson, because he had a lot of injuries. But I think you get the point. It's like all those guys, which to me is like a tier below. No. Derek Johnson is right. a very good linebacker. But I wouldn't exactly say he's with the Keekleys and the Ray Lewises and the people you know, no. like that. No, he's. Uh, um, I think everyone would agree they are a tier below. A little tier below. But they're really good. These are guys that if, if a guy hit this area, which there are a lot of guys that hit this area, and I'll, you know, I'll get into that, but if, if a guy hit this area, I'd go, wow, that's pretty good, right? I mean, you, know, you, would, you would say that. So, and, and then below that, you have a lot of guys that have had who, you know, they've been contributors. They've been guys that have had, you know, relatively good careers. You know, the Alec Olgatries, the DJ Williams from Miami, the James Laronitis, right? The... Uh, the D'Amico Ryan, the Pat Angerer, you know, the Ray Maluga, you know, the Lawrence Timmons, you know, Pittsburgh, see their guy, um, you know, Brian Cushing, you know, those types of guys. There ain't nothing wrong with those guys either. It's just. Nope. Solid I wouldn't exactly. Starters who have 10 year careers. Yes. Right. But I, but I wouldn't also, I wouldn't put them over, you know, um, you know, the other guys I mentioned in terms of, like, Derek Johnson. So, like, I wouldn't put them over Derek Johnson. I wouldn't put them over, um, uh, you know, those types of players. So, but that's really where it is. And then you really don't have a huge diminishing. Uh, it's it It's a pretty steep drop-off. But, again, it depends on how you define these guys. Manny Lawson's one of these guys where is he an edge? Is he a linebacker? I don't know. I mean, he wasn't a bad player, but it's just one of those confusing guys where it's like what is he the scott fujita right you know who is more fujita. i was a big fan of scott fujita of a rush what about him all over the place well he was more of like a rush line but you know a, a strong side linebacker rush yeah he, he did type. a little bit of both in his career yes but he's he's one of those which i'm not like compare i'm not like comparing him to um to the linebacker from temple in this class but it's one of those guys where, like, size-wise, scouts are like, he ain't an edge rusher. He's only 230, you know, whatever pounds. But that's what he does best, you know, in terms of brushing the pasture and stuff like well, that. Well, here's so, what blows my mind. It's like people have forgotten what Von Miller weighed. Von Miller, he's true. on weight. Yeah, he was 237 at the combine. Yes, he was small. But, but he also had, you know, I'm not denying that. I think in terms of size, people would be really surprised at like what the low end for size and the high end for size is um, at positions. And a lot of times when they say what they want size wise, they're looking for like the, the highest end of that, you know, like, what do you want at the end? Uh, 270 
five pounder. Well, that's like really high end weight for you know, DN um, for the most part. Um, the average weight is more like 255, 260-ish. But, but yeah, I mean, I'm just saying like these are guys that were kind of odd, I guess. The NFL treated them weirdly, you know. They had careers, but DeAndre Levy, right? You know, another one of the guys that kind of like that. But for the most part, not a lot of, again, I didn't mention any Hall of Famers. You know, Scott Fajita ain't going to the Hall of Fame. You know, DeAndre Levy ain't going to the Hall of Fame. Uh, Donnie Spragan, you know, Spragan, <laughs> he ain't going to the Hall of Fame. Bruce neither, Carter. Neither Bruce of them Bruce are Carter. going to the Hall of Fame. I was a big Bruce, Bruce Carter fan. And he had a yeah. on special teams and, okay. you know, he, running around and, you know. He couldn't stay healthy. Right. That was the other part of his issue. But, yes, so, I remember him very well. I was way too high on him, obviously. And, of course, Anthony Barr, too, who's kind of like Manny Lawson to a certain extent. But, um, but I'm just saying, like, if you don't hit a certain area, it's not that you don't have a chance at all of being a productive player or at least being a contributor or whatever. I'm just saying that I think the goal when it comes to pursuit linebackers it's to get the Jonathan Vilmas, the Derek Johnsons, the Zach Thomases, like best, like the best case scenario, you want the Ray Lewises and the Patrick Wilsons, but you're not always going to get that guy. You're not going to get Luke Keekley no, over here. Not all the time. So no. you at least want to get the guys that are, you know, like the other guys I mentioned, like the Derek Johnsons, the Derek Johnsons, or the Al Wilsons, or the Sean Lees, or the Jamie Collinses, or the Jonathan Vilmas. Like those are the types of guys that you would prefer over the guys that I meant, you know, the other guy, which is nothing wrong with those guys. And of course there's other athletic, again, there's other athletic things going into this, but I'm just saying it's kind of like that. In terms of this class, uh, there are guys that I'm still working out like Nate Holly at Kent State. I don't think he's going to be playing linebacker, but that's kind of like, he, he had really, really high solo attack from March year. Um, Nate Holly at Kent State, but he's more so like a safety guy. T. Gray Scales, I'm not sure, is in this class, though, from Indiana. But he's another guy that had really high uh, solo tackle market share. Uh, let me see. Let me see who's actually in this class. Rodney Butler from New Mexico State um, had uh, the sort of elite area of uh, solo tackle market share. Uh, Zach Cunningham. Zach Cunningham's probably the biggest, I don't know, I don't know. Like, he's, he's a guy that, again, I, I have some reservations based on him as an athlete, but I still don't understand why we're putting Reuben Foster over Zach Cunningham, considering the differences. I mean, they played in the same conference um, against similar competition, and you have one guy that was, like, crazy, crazy in terms of solo tackle market in terms of Cunningham, and then you have another guy, Reuben Foster, who um, – Barely. I mean, I think he was 70s. They didn't even hit Pro Bowl level solo tackle market share. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but I mean, would you, if if the draft happened again, Bill, would you take Lawrence Timmons in the top 10? No. Well, I wasn't a fan of taking Lawrence Timmons in the top 10 uh, initially. <laughs> right. Uh, I've warmed up to him some. Right. Uh, but if the draft happened this week, Lawrence Timmons was in this class. Oh, that was kind of bad example. But if there was a guy that, you know, like, oh, this guy is going to be possibly the next Lawrence Timmons, would you consider him to be a top 10 player in this class? 
Or top five, no. better, actually. That's a better way to explain it. Because that's where Ruben Foster is getting mocked now as the top five. Yeah. Oh, oh, boy. That's all I'm saying. Is If you say a guy is the greatest of all time, or about to be the greatest of all time, based on traits, it's another thing, too. I saw the tape. It reminds me so much of Patrick Willis. What tape are you watching? Like, a, you know. <laughs> but, I must wonder how much of... Patrick Willis's tape they've actually watched. That's I yeah, guess, the question. That's and, and again, him at Ole Miss as well. I mean, where he was killing people. That's what I meant. Just that's what I meant. I meant his, his, yes. That's like sending people to the hospital. Right. He was so much more powerful at the point of attack. He used to just collapse guards. I mean, he would come down and just hit them, and they would break. You know, exactly. or whatever. It was like Miles Jack, <sighs> Miles Jack all over again, but a good version of Miles Jack. So, like, it's, you know, again, it's it's just one of those things where it's like, but whatever. Like, Cunningham, at least, very, very high production. I have issues with production, but if he becomes, again, Daryl Smith, Georgia Tech, like, there's there, I, I have no doubts in my mind that he, that he has the tools to be a very good inside linebacker, he's just somebody that you have to value based on like what his athletic ability might be, um, which may be lower. But Cunningham was always the guy where, you know, he had so many tackles at Vanderbilt, and there's all these people saying, oh, well, he missed a lot of tackles too. And I'm just kind of like, okay, all right. You know, like, <laughs> I don't know what you want. Do you want a linebacker that you know, puts himself in position to make a lot of tackles or a linebacker that doesn't put himself in position to make a lot of tackles, but at least he makes a good percentage of the ones that he actually did the whole. It's like, you know, it's like the argument about, I mean, Moneyball, right? It's a Moneyball argument. Do you want the guy who doesn't make a lot of contact? Um, I sort of made up a baseball stack called contact to damage ratio and it hasn't caught up, caught on yet, but it would be a guy who it compares guys based on how many times they actually make contact with the ball. And, you know, damage is defined by total bases and um, uh, RBIs divided by the amount of times they make contact with the baseball. And you can have a guy like, oh, my gosh, um, he was with the Tampa Bay uh, Rays and also with Detroit first baseman. His name is escaping me. Something Martinez, I think. But he used to miss the ball a lot. But when he made contact, (laughs) really good things happened. So he would have not spectacular batting averages and not even a terrific on base percentage. He didn't walk that much either. So you prefer a guy, you know, be like Kevin Euclid, might not have a great batting average, but walks a lot. He wasn't that guy either. He didn't walk a lot, uh, didn't have a great batting average, but his slugging percentage in RBIs were always really high. Because when he did, right. when he made contact, really good things happened. Right. Exactly. So, I don't know. And again, I'm not saying that the whole missed tackles or missed potential. I just think it's such a such a hard thing to define. And again, you like make in, a solo like tackle, interceptable like interceptable balls. Yeah. It it's stuff like that. Where again, the reason why I like solo tackles and sacks is not just because of the correlation to it. It's because it's pretty well defined what that is. A sack is a sack. A solo tackle is a solo tackle. There's not a lot of leeway there when it comes to that type of a statistic. You either got a sack or you didn't get a sack. You either got a tackle or you didn't get a tackle. You know, there's not a lot of funny business, I guess, when it comes to that stat. So that's that's the only reason why I kind of like 
not only because there's correlation, because I just told you, you know, the correlations, but because there, you know, there's, it's, it's more grounded in reality, I guess. But in terms of other guys, yeah, uh, Ironhead Gallon from Georgia Southern oh. is one of the guys that had um, fairly high uh, solo tackle market share in the class as well. He didn't play the best competition, but again, for the most part, competition is not really the biggest deal in the world. Um, like it, like there, there wasn't a strong correlation to the competition that you played and your tackle percentage. Like it wasn't strong enough to like make a huge difference and stuff. But um, yeah, Christian Tago from San Jose State, another one of guys kind of like that. Uh, Sean Wiggins from Ball State, Anthony Walker Jr. from Northwestern. This is based mostly on his uh, 2015 season, though. So um, this season wasn't as good, but it, I don't know. But that kind of happened with him. Anthony went from FIU. Elijah Lee, who's surprisingly in this class, but he's, he's here as well. I have questions about athleticism. Jesse Joel is going back to school, so he's not in here. Kenneth uh, from Colorado. Some of those guys that hit that sort of area. Jalen Reeves Maven did as well. Uh, Jelani Tave or Tavo from Hawaii. Blair Brown from Ohio, who I actually like uh, a bit um, from uh, the linebacker from Ohio. Raquan McMillan is here. This is also based on what he did his freshman year. Uh, and Ty Lotelele from UNLV. Eric Wilson from Cincinnati, Jayon Brown from UCLA, Robert Spillies on in this class, Nico Marley, son of, you know, the other Marley, I think, um, Calvin Munson, and Quentin Poland. So, a lot of guys, you know. The only, the only thing I would say it's out of those linebackers I just said. There's only like four of them that I like. And for the most part, I don't necessarily think this is going to be the most athletic. Like out of the guys I mentioned, I don't think all those guys are going to test well enough as athletes to be elite guys. But I think there's a lot of um, potential for like lots of depth and guys that could be starters. I mean, lots of guys that could potentially um, be good contributors at the next level at the linebacker position. But I just don't think that there's any elite guys in this class. Um, if you will, because they don't have the traits. You know, even a guy like Ruben Foster doesn't have the traits in terms of, you know, production traits and stuff like that. So, but the closest, if I'm understanding correctly, is Zach Cunningham. Yeah, the closest is him, um, because all the other guys they went back to school. You know, Micah Kaiser went back to school. Um, T. Gray Scales went back to school. So all the other guys went back to school, and Rodney Butler. I think is underclassman, so I don't think he declared. But the closest is is Cunningham in terms of like mainstream, and and he's also a guy that did play a tough schedule and you know all that sort of stuff. So he had lots of production against. You can't really deny his schedule. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Some of these other guys you no. can deny it with not Cunningham. <laughs> Got it. And now moving on to the, uh, what term do we use to describe them? The uh, rush linebackers, touring, uh, you know, 40-something to touring 
60 or so pound hybrid tweener rush men, whatever, whatever you want to call them. Uh, however you, you figure those guys out, what numbers do they need to have to, to be Lawrence Taylor, to be Von Miller, to be Derek Thomas, uh, right. Derek Thomas or, you know, those guys. Right. Well, when it comes to those guys, um, it's the same, same sort of stuff with the, again, the MSA rating, uh, hundred percent of all pro players, uh, who were edge rushers had at least a 76 or higher, um, with the sort of, you know, the market share, strength schedule, um, age sort of thing. The guys that hit that area in this class, the top guy is Takerus McKinley, who, okay. I, you know, he's not British, but I wish he was, because it'd be like, what's your name? I'm Takerus McKinley. I don't know, that's just how <laughs> uh, Derek Barnett, of course, from Tennessee. Miles Garrett. Uh, Marquise Haynes went back to school. Harold Landry went back to school. Jimmy Gilbert's here. Demarcus Walker, who nobody likes anymore, is here. TJ Watt. You said no one likes him anymore? No, nobody likes him anymore. I remember back in my day, you know, he was our... I'm old enough to remember when Demarcus Walker got When people liked him, yeah. What is it that... Because I've gotten to little, you know, quibbles with people about him, too. Right. I think mm-hmm. he's a top 25 prospect all day long in this class, but I don't understand why people are, are falling, fall, falling out of love. He doesn't have the traits. No? Ah. I don't know. Hello. People's definition of traits are funny. You know, we got into this whole thing with Bosa. Bosa was a guy who had tremendous production, who was one of the most polished pass rushers I've seen. You know, people were going, oh, yes. Better than Clowney. No, he was better than Clowney just in terms of hand usage. So, like, you see all that stuff and you're like, yeah, but he's just going to be okay. You know, like, I didn't get that sense of it. It was just really dumb. I don't know. But I just, you don't need to be super explosive or super fast to be a really good pass rusher. You just need to have certain qualities, which he has, you know, 90% off plus flexibility for his size. And out leveraging guys is another way to win, guys. You know, Terrell says he's been doing it for a while, but um, I'm just saying, like, people need to understand there's different ways that people win in, in terms of athletic traits, but, but whatever, man. Demarcus Walker is here. T.J. Watt is here as well. I'm not the biggest fan of T.J. Watt, but, again, he, he's here. Charles Harris is here. Jordan Willis is here. I don't like Dwayne Sloop, but he's here as well. Yeah. <laughs> And Keon Adams is here. Darius English, another guy I don't like that much, but he's here as well. John Stepek from Toledo is here. And Mr. Hassan Reddick is here. Yay. So um, that's all the guys that hit the sort of – oh, the last guy, Dietrich Wise, Hunter Dimmick. Yeah, Yeah, that's actually it. So. That's something I didn't really get, Bill. You know, the MAC has a lot of really good pass rushers. You know, John Stevick, uh, Terrence Waugh, right? Joe Osman is interesting. Yep. Keon Adams is interesting. And they go with Terrell Basham. That's the guy huh. they go with. Huh. I, I never got huh. that. I'm just saying. I, um, I, I prefer Waugh to Basham. 
Um, right. I was on my all underappreciated team, as you know. I've been talking about him for a while, and uh, for some reason, he has not been snapped up <laughs> by others for some reason. Right. I, I'm with you on a bunch of those guys. <sighs> Basham is probably going to test better than all but a couple of them. That's the only thing maybe. I can think of. Right, maybe. Maybe. Right. He he's like he's better than all but a couple of them. You know, but again, excuses, excuses, man. I mean, I just, I, I don't know. I, I just always was, I was like, what? But yeah. Cause, and, and not to say that, you know, again, they're all better than him. I just, I was just like, you know, all these guys are very similar in terms of how they win and how they produce and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's like, that's the guy you pick. I never really understood yep. that. Um, Bill Savage saw something he liked. Apparently. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, Hassan Rick definitely, um, that area too, but who knows what the NFL does. Maybe they'll make him do a fullback. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's troll everybody. Turn Hassan Rick into a fullback. But yeah, those are all the guys that have, uh, you know, multiple all pro or pro bowl, uh, potential based on their production and based on all that other sort of stuff, which a lot of these guys we've talked about a lot. Miles Garrett we've talked about a lot, you know, um, well, I think is probably the best out of the bunch. Take this McKinley. Uh, he's growing on me a little bit in terms of like what he can do. Derek Barnett's also interesting in terms of what he can do. DeMarcus Walker does some stuff that's, that's good, solid. TJ Watt, I think can do some things. Charles Harris is another guy that I think is kind of underrated. Um, Willis as well. So, you know, lots of guys. Lots of, guys. Lots of uh, potential in the edge class, of course. But I prefer to call them edge. And, again, I, I don't – what you'll like about me, Bill, is when I say a guy's an edge, he's not a 3-4 defensive end. No. So, <laughs> I, I'm not a term at all, as I'm sure you already know, because I've never once in my entire life seen, you know – defensive coaches that break down practice, grab a guy and say 96, go in there at edge. Right. So okay. I, well, but I, I'll try to, I'll try to get used to I it because the young folks really like it. Through. You know, I, I think of it as pass rush, rushing right. off the edge, setting the yeah. edge. Sure. And like that's that. why I use, I use terms like pass rusher, you know, that's why I just go ahead and go with pass rusher. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I know, I know what you're saying. I get it. Like I said, I'll, I'll, I realize I'm going to lose this fight. At some point, I'll just give it up. But for the moment, I inwardly rage at the term. <laughs> I mean, it's better than Leo or Tomahawk <laughs> or, you know, Panther position. <laughs> Which at least are fun descriptive. At least are fun descriptive terms. At least are whether or not they mean anything. At least they're fun and fun to say. Um, sure. Mandingo precision. I mean, I think they should yeah, do that. Go. Mandingo precision. <laughs> She'd be like, why do you call it the Mandingo position? I'm like, because, because you say, oh, shoot, I, that's Mandingo. I look, look at him. Exactly. I mean, I knew a guy who's got arms where, you know, go down halfway down his calves, who's incredibly ripped, who makes my wife slightly uncomfortable, but yet aroused. Exactly. Just call it that. Everybody knows what that is. Everybody knows what that means. Boom. Problem solved. <laughs> we, yeah. have, we, have, we have fixed something in one, in one show. That would be, that would be, if some team would actually pick that up, of course, there'd be problems, I guess. But if some team yeah, would, would be pick problems. the term up, it would, 
It would be awesome. He'd be fired immediately. Whoever came up with that idea, you'd have to say intern came up with that. Yeah, you would. Rob Nate. Yeah. You know, I guess you won't be getting that full-time position. But, yes, um, even though uh, the chances of it being picked up are unlikely, it does actually describe as completely as any other position term that people have used I mean, yes, the guy that looks like Joey Porter, that guy. That's the one we're talking about. That's the guy. Kind of scary guy. <laughs> Joey Porter's kind of scary. Even in real life, you meet Joey Porter. He sizes you up. He yeah. figures out if he wants to talk to you or not. He, just, he probably even smells you. He just comes up to you and just smells you. goes, yeah, that's weakness. I don't want to talk to you. Weak size. <laughs> yes. Joey Porter, even now, today, the apex predator part of him is still very much alive, as you have no doubt noticed. Yeah. But, yes, that, as, as accurately as anything else I've ever heard anyone use, that, that term, whether or not it ever gets picked up, basically describes exactly who people want. They want that guy. That's who they want. A little bit of danger surrounds them. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, guys like that. And of course, Khalil Mack. I just throw him in because you know it's Khalil Mack, but he's another guy that's kind of in that, you know, the area of uh, production. And again, the guys that are below that, they're not bad. You know, we're talking about guys like Paul Kruger, right? He's a guy who made money. Yeah. You know, Mark Anderson. Dude, Paul he's made money. Around forever. Yeah. You know, Javon yeah. Kurz. I do say didn't, Javon Kurz. Didn't Mark Anderson lead the entire league? Mark Anderson led the entire league in sacks one season, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yep, he did for a couple seasons. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, at least right. one. But yeah, I mean, you know, again, these are guys that to me, Connor Barwin, right? Yeah. Easily, you yeah, know, guys like that. Connor Barwin, he's here. We go, a, a white man dingo, right? <laughs> you know, he's out there still yep. getting Exactly. But go holding it down for the culture. Pretty much, you know. So I mean. Again, these are guys that, that can can do stuff for you. Some of them, like everything Griffin, are obviously not that great. But like you know, there's there's lots well, of guys. Well, it's funny you should say that because lately the Everson Griffin love has been growing out there in yeah. the community. I know. Sure. Sure. Nick Perry too. Nick Perry's been getting love recently too. Well, I mean, I think we hit the the highest of high when you know we have. Olivier Vernon getting Von Miller money and people going, nope, not a problem. No problem with that. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Love them pressures. You're getting all the pressures. I don't know. But again, another one of the things I usually say is, you know, you go to the Hall of Fame, it's the sacks, not pressures. You know, like that's, but whatever. But yeah, I mean, guys like that. So if a guy hits below that area, you know, it doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that, you know, they could they could be like a Robert Ayers type or a Brady Papinga, right? Charles Grant, you know, Jason World. You know, he's kind of there too. But, um, you know, guys like that are, are not bad. It's just that they're not exactly guys that, you know, you would want to spend a top 10 pick on, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. No, and Javon Curtis is another guy who I think, I'm not saying Javon Cruz is, like, overrated or overrated. I just think that his athleticism writes checks that his play didn't really do. 
in his career. He he did not become Lawrence Taylor, which was at one point people right. were expecting. <laughs> you know, that's right. that's essentially what you could say. He was people when he came out of Tennessee. Oh my God! If draft Twitter had been around in those days, Jim, the hyperbole <laughs> we would have seen <gasps> when he ran that four four eight. And, you know, <laughs> at 262 pounds, there would have been people who literally would have ovulated at that moment. So, yes, I mean, draft Twitter would have gone insane if they had seen young curse. Oh, the things they would have said, the things they would have promised for the chance that he would come to their team. Oh, geez. Oh, the things that would have been written about his future. And he, was a very good player for a long time. I mean, let's not sell him short, but he did sure. not become Lawrence Taylor or Derek Thomas. True. Exactly. Or any of those guys. Which Derek Thomas' numbers were crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. that was the other thing I was going back to do. Because you look at it and you go, okay, so you have this guy that had 20-plus sacks and then everybody else who had like one, two, three sacks. <laughs> it was just funny <laughs> to see. But I mean, you know, different guys like that. I mean, the top, the top guys, according to, you know, to the just to get the top, you know, fifteen really, because that's how good. I mean, that's how decent it is. You know, Mike Vrabel is actually number one, so he gets some, you know, chops. Ohio State guy, you know, Derek Morgan, Simeon Rice, Terrell Suggs, Derek Thomas, Justin Houston, Justin Tuck, Jadavion Clowney, Sean Merriman, Von Miller, Anthony Barr, Mario Williams, Aaron Smith. White Freeney and Joey Bosa. Not a bad list. No. A couple of guys on that list have a shot at the Hall of Fame. Uh, a couple of guys, the guys on that list. are already in the Hall of Fame, so. You know. Right, exactly. A couple in the Hall of Fame, a couple of a shot. So, yeah, it's a good list. <laughs> a bunch of other guys, amongst the younger ones, are going to definitely be guys that are going to make Pro Bowls and, and All Pro before it's all said and done. So, yeah, that's a, I would. Agree with you. That list is good. And this is why, again, because I get this a lot of like people going, you know, like, oh, well, his athleticism wasn't great. He was injured during testing. Like that's the only thing I can really say. And I usually go, look at the production. Look at this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, right. So it's, it's funny. There's a just look at the tape Twitter, and they, you know, seem to want to be taken seriously. But if you were able to say just look at the production, you know what will happen. You know, it's all, you know. That's fine. But death to the nerds and all that stuff. <laughs> but but there's a moment for everything, right? Like, you can't tell me that Justin Tuck didn't do anything at Notre Dame to make you go, yeah, that guy sucks. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, or or you could you couldn't really say that about on Smith, or you know, of course, Alvin Smith has been more off the field. But I mean, you know, a lot of these guys. Have have are players that oh they didn't test well like I just did a thing on Clayus Campbell Clayus Campbell wasn't the greatest athlete for a size ever but no, he was ninety nine no. percentile in terms of production and everything else like that you know what he's been for the last eight years Bill in the ninety percentiles of production <laughs> for eight straight seasons so sometimes good, yeah. <laughs> it is it is so I just have to again sometimes you just have to look at everything and go. Yeah, he's not a you know maybe he's not a great athlete, but there are guys who aren't great athletes who succeed at these positions. 
Um, or at least not the best athlete. Bosa, you know, again, Bosa's had attributes to his athleticism that were great. He just didn't have great all-around athleticism, which is something that people don't get. But at the very least, they don't get because you're basing your sample size on six years, ten years, whatever, which is just not a big enough sample size, you know, nope. to really it is get a the spectrum. tiny little sample size. Yes. I mean, if you got out of a very cold water situation, you could have to, you know, as people sort of pointed and laughed at your sample, you'd have to point out that shrinkage maybe had taken place. Pretty much. But, I mean, for the most part, I, I do feel good about the edge class, as most people do. I just think that there are some guys that are a little overrated. Um, sure. Usually it's the guys that are athletic or have athletic qualities. People go goo, got to go over Tim Williams, you know, people like that. Yes, but, yes. Yeah, I do not have part, him in my top 30 prospects. These are my top 40 prospects. These are not my top 30 prospects. Right. Which, actually, let me see the Tim Williams. Oh, yeah, he's 45 out of 100. So I feel very good about where I have him then. <laughs> best Without knowing scenario. that, <laughs> that's very best close to where scenario. I have him. You have Jarvis Green from LSU, uh, Cameron Wembley from Florida State, I remember him. Yep, uh, I do too. Mike Rucker. I, I was still, I was doing, I was working for CDS when he came out. We, he was quite debated. Uh, right. <laughs> but yes, yeah, continue. Yeah, and there's, uh, yeah, Ezekiel Elliott's here. Well, not Ezekiel Elliott. Ezekiel Anza um, is here. But he had really, really high solo tackle market share, um, which I usually, again, he had one. As I say to most people, usually guys have at least one attribute to their production that was like really, really good when it came to guys that were that saw some amount of like they just didn't suck across the board, which is Tim Williams. But I'm just you know, throwing it out there as an example. Um, but yeah, I mean, or, or Cameron Wake is another guy who probably one of the probably easily outlier just because not really that productive. Goes to Canada, comes back. You know, super soldier serum, you know, and boom, Tim Williams. <laughs> right. It's hard to predict that happens. So if Tim, Williams over becomes, over well, if Tim Williams becomes a lesser version of Cameron Wake, sort of beats the odds, uh, would that cause you to sort of recalibrate? I mean, because I know some people like to, you know, re redraw the – the boundaries right. or whatever, somebody falls outside of them. What do you do when well, if that happens? You look at what the variables are. I mean, at least with me. I mean, the one thing I could say about Cameron Wake is he didn't, you know, miss multiple drug tests, you know, like that. That wasn't exactly. <laughs> that. that didn't happen to him. So, I mean, you just kind of, you just look for the variables. I mean, sure, there's definitely is the sort of argument of, well, if you have outlier, then your system messed up. But I usually go, well, outlier is just the opportunity to find a, another variable that could give you better results, you know. Um, so it's just a matter of figuring out what that variable is. You know, sometimes it's coaching, you know, like I don't even know what the variable is, but it, it, that's what you're trying to figure out is like, okay, I'm testing this variable that wasn't the best, maybe I can find a one that's better. So that's all I would really do in situations like that, especially with Cameron Wake. Because, I mean, he did have explosiveness uh, yes. qualities. He, he had he had some things that you could uh, take and, 
you know, like basically he tested a lot like Joey Porter in terms of his athletic ability. Wasn't as productive well, as Joey Porter coming out of Colorado State. <laughs> no. No, he was But not. you could definitely look at that and go, wow, this is a guy that we should probably invest in or, you know, try out or, you know, something like that. But for as much success as he's had, there's definitely a lot more things to that than just athleticism and stuff. Like there's tons of Cameron Wakes, but there's only one Cameron Wake. You know, so you're just figuring out what that variable was that, that made him Cameron Wake and made all these other guys into whoever they were, you know, no name people, people we don't talk about anymore, I guess. So. Like Jarvis Moss. Exactly, Jarvis Moss, you know. Or you know, I hate to say Bruce Irvin, but he's you know, like that. I mean Bruce Irvin still collected game checks, don't get me wrong, but And he will for maybe a few years. I mean he's He's not on his way out of the league anytime soon. Sure, but I don't know. But Reserve is another one of the guys where it's like, again, had some initial success, so he worked out, but then now he's on the Raiders. So, like, if he, you know, I don't know. But there's lots of stuff that goes into this. But all I'm saying is, for the most part, if you're talking about guys that were Hall of Famers, guys that were not guys that, you know, had careers that were good, because, um, again, uh, you're trying to find guys that are going to be special players. You can improve on finding good players. Like, you can, again, variables, right? So, for the most part, all the special players ended up in a certain area, and all the guys that weren't special ended up in this other area. And, sure, if I miss on Ezekiel Anza, you know, or at least if I don't overpay for Ezekiel Anza, that's, that's just the risk you have to take, I guess, you know. That you don't want if you don't want to pay. But then again, as I'd also say, as Ezekiel Anza, there were things to look at from from a athleticism standpoint, solo tackle standpoint, stuff like that, where you could have looked at that stuff and went, "Wow, there's lots of stuff here to work with and stuff like that." But it was a huge risk, and I'm not saying it didn't pay off, but I am saying that, like again, Ezekiel Anza is not going to the Hall of Fame. Like that's just something I don't think is going to happen in his career. So it's just system was right, it's just that it didn't really predict him to have the type of uh, sort of career he had. You know, he had some success. It's just he didn't have as much success as uh, he had a little bit more success than what the model thought he was going to have, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Because he was successful, right. it's just he wasn't successful at a level to where I'm now, I'm so upset that I missed <laughs> I guess, you know, I, I, I'm I'd rather get Justin Houston and Sean Merriman and Bob Miller than Nick Galanza, <laughs> is all I'm trying to say. <laughs> okay, got it. And moving to the true full-time, I guess this is sort of an interesting thing. So the guys we talked about were sort of, you know, the hybrid tweener types, 240-something, 250, 260. For the guys who are true, the 270, 265, 270, 280-pound, and some people you project some of these guys a five technique, but the, the big DMs, what do we call them, base ends, whatever team you like, the big guy uh, on the edge, bigger dudes, whatever you want to call them, the I call them full-time pass rushers. You know, Michael Strahan on up in terms of size. You know, the guys who are 
like I said, you know, Miles Garrett uh, sized on up. Uh, what do you look for in those guys? Or do you differentiate between the three, four outside linebacker types and the true DN types in terms of the work you do? Oh, well, I, I don't really differentiate. Um, I've done it before, but there wasn't really, uh, there just wasn't really anything there um, in terms of really big differences. A lot of times the three, four outside linebacker edge rusher the rush linebacker types and the full-time DN type, there would be a slight difference in solo tackle market share because, you know, the outside linebacker types usually have better opportunities. because they're able to keep themselves clean more. They're able to, you know, they're able to make more tackles uh, away from the line of scrimmage. Uh, okay. Because so, so, so let's, go back. So let's yeah. go back in, you know, 30 well over 30 years, two Thai water boys who became different types of pass rush types. Bruce Smith from Booker T. Washington High School in Norfolk and the pride of Lafayette High School uh, in Williamsburg, Lawrence Taylor. In terms of how they compare statistically, they're both pass rushers, but obviously doing it from a different position. If, were there any significant differences? And if so, what were they in terms of how got players like that compare? Oh, Lawrence Taylor and Chris Smith. Well, I don't have their production stuff yet. Anyways, um, again, I would just say that the, the, the difference is about maybe 1% to 2% difference in solo tackle market share. Oh, okay. Between the outside linebacker types and the defensive end types. It was really the big difference, and for the most part, it didn't really mess up anything because sack market share and tackle for loss market share was pretty even um, for the most part. It's just the outside linebacker type people usually have more impact uh, because, again, they're able to do more things, I guess. It's kind of like the difference between, you know, Quill Mack and Jadavion and Clowney kind of, you know, Clowney definitely does a lot of stuff. He can get in the backfield and do, you know, a lot of stuff like that. Actually, maybe a better example is like Dwight Freeney. Like that's actually a better example. You know, you have a guy like Dwight Freeney. His he's going to live in the backfield. But if he isn't in the backfield um and impacting it from that way, then he's not as impactful as a guy like Quill Max who you you know, if as a three four outside linebacker, he's able to get in the back, we'll do all that stuff, but also do stuff where he's away from the line of scrimmage and, you know, doing that kind of stuff too. So and that's the thing about that comparison is that Mac is actually slightly larger than Freeney, despite the fact that one is thought of as a, right. a true defensive end, he's almost thought of as a true linebacker. Right, right. But that's all I would really say is that it's, it's that sort of, or like Simeon Rice, Derek Thomas, or, you know, like, there, there is differences, but it's not to the extent where it really affects things that much in terms of the statistics and the data, you know. Um, but like I said, the only big difference is like one to two percent difference, which, statistically speaking, wasn't really that. It wasn't enough to where I have to like I have to evaluate every single three four D in a certain way. Well, not three four D but three four outside linebacker a certain way, and every single defensive end needs to be evaluated. It wasn't that big of a difference. 
um, especially since so many teams kind of adapt guys to their system anyway, you know, like, if they're a, if they're a defensive end, they turn them into a three-four outside linebacker, and um, you know they're and they're not a true three-four outside linebacker, but they're still producing in a similar way, you know, as a as a pass rusher. So there's so much intermingling and you know stuff like that that it just kind of gets the, there. There isn't like a huge difference to really emphasize, I guess, when it comes to those divisions. Got it. And now to the – obviously, there's only a few teams that run the 3-4 in college anyway. So when you evaluate defensive tackles, I'm assuming you just evaluate guys who line up a defensive tackle in college and don't worry about if they might be, quote-unquote, projected to five technique. And then if you do find a guy who actually plays 3-4 D end in college, and there's a handful that do, do you compare? How do you compare them with, you know, how do you find their group comparison-wise to figure out how, you know, like even how to measure them, I guess, you know, statistically speaking or metrically speaking? Well, for the most part, I just look at, uh, you know, what position they played. I really just look at the scheme they were in and then sort of extrapolate the position based on, um, a lot like linebacker, uh, there are differences, or like there's major differences between uh, nose tackle production and uh, defensive tackle production. But for the most part, I just separate it from nose tackle to 3-4 DN slash defensive tackle because there wasn't that big of a difference between those two positions production-wise. Got it. And it's fascinating to see a guy like Chris Long, who did play the five technique in college, even though he was about 272 pounds at the time. And as a pro, he's played mostly 4-3 DN and even occasionally been stood up. In, <laughs> occasionally, you know, I mean, Belichick likes to move guys around, but occasionally he stood him up as, a, as you know, an elephant, I guess, is what the, whatever term you want to use in their, their system. Right. Exactly. Um, I mean, I mean, the biggest difference between, I guess the biggest difference is that nose tackles oftentimes, they, the really good ones, I should say, are guys that get very good solo tackle market share. So they may not get high sacks or high TFL market share, but they're able to get lots of solo tackles. Um, guys like Halote Nata and Vince Wilfork and, you know, those types of guys have been guys that didn't have great across-the-board production, but they had one very good production area And versus three, four defensive ends who pretty much were good across the board. And every other sort of defensive tackle position was uh, a similar sort of result. I mean, it just really comes down to, like, physical characteristics, too. Because, you know, three, four defensive ends usually have longer arms, they're taller, they're stuff like that, kind of plays into that as well. And I don't know if that's just team preference or if it just is something, too, that I always think there is something to that because you do need more length at that position, you know, if you think about it. But I usually 
just kind of look at how they produced, uh, you know, how productive they were, if you will, and then just extrapolate from there, I guess, when it comes to that, when it comes to defensive tackle position. And looking now at those defensive, true defensive front positions, your real defensive ends, your defensive tackles, your five techniques, and your, you know, the now rare <laughs> nose, tech, uh, nose tackle tackles. Tell me about who in the class, who are the guys that actually stack up metrically with the guys that have been multiple-year pro bowlers? Right. Well, at the defensive tackle position, um, it's the same. Again, same thing as MSA, uh, but the MSA for there for all pro types and pro bowl types was 85 out of 100. Uh, which is much higher than a lot of other um, sort of areas. And this was actually one that I, that I was able to get all the way back to the 90s. Well, 1989, yeah, 1990 draft class. So guys like Cortez Kennedy and, you know, people like that, uh, I was able to add to the set, Bryant Young. Uh, but in this class, one guy, the, very, the top guy, I will say this much, he's, he's really helped by his age. But it's Malik McDowell. Um, he was the highest sort of MSA guy. Uh, he's in between Tuit and Buckner. Um, he was really helped out this year by how unproductive his defense was, which is why I kind of want to <laughs> do again. There was only eleven sacks on the Michigan State <laughs> total. That is so, really a, a crazy number. So you look at that and you go, okay. Yeah, Jordan Willis says right. hi to your 11 sacks as a team. Exactly. <laughs> but it does really help Malik McDowell out because, again, he's, he's 99 out of 100 in terms of age percentile. So, like, that helps him out a lot in terms of um, in terms of those sort of things. But he's definitely a guy I kind of want to, um, which I've already been doing that, just kind of double-checking things and going back and doing stuff uh, to check stuff. But he's just one of those guys that he's a top guy. I still have lots of reservations about him. I just do. Um, you know, it, maybe testing will fix that. Maybe not. Who knows? But he's definitely one of those kind of like that. Uh, the guy below him, though, uh, is Solomon Thomas from Stanford, who people seem to think is a 4-3 DN now. So that's a thing. Because I guess because it's his size? I mean, I, I, don't, I can't imagine what, why that would be. I guess it's his size, maybe. He's just not big enough. I've even heard, oh, he gets manhandled. Now, that's the thing, too. He gets manhandled inside. As if Malik McDowell never got manhandled inside. <laughs> like, I just, <laughs> I don't get it, man. I really don't get it. But, yeah. So, just stuff like that. Again, some people get manhandled. Some people get double teamed, and they lose that battle. But, uh, whatever. But, Thomas is here. I evaluated him. I evaluated him as this because, again, he was lined up inside. He was producing inside. He was being guards. Like, that's, that's how he was winning. So um, that's kind of where he is. Production-wise, um, he's right below Cortez Kennedy. Uh, oh, wow. He's actually in Cortez Kennedy and Jarrell Casey is right below him. So that's kind of oh, wow. where he's at in terms of that kind of stuff. You go that feels a like a bit, good place to be. It is a good place to be. Again, these are really high. Like I said, this is really good defensive tackle. I don't know why people are saying it's not, but yeah. So 
unless you don't view Thomas as a defensive tackle, which I do, but um, but yeah, he's he's there. Jonathan Allen is a little bit further down. Um, you remember Dan Wilkinson from Ohio State? Big Daddy. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Another guy that people just flat out loves coming out. Once again, draft Twitter would have eaten him up with a whatever. Right. He was he was young also, I believe. It was a part I think it was yep. part of the excitement. He was ginormous. He was ginormous. really, really big. And he moved well for a three hundred and fifty yeah. something pounder. Exactly. But he never became the superstar that so many people predicted he would be. Right. Well, Jonathan Allen is, you know, Dan Wilkinson is above him, Broderick Buntley is below him. It's not a bad area. You know, Kenny Clark is also here and people don't like for some reason now. I don't know. I thought he'd do okay. Uh, Geno Atkins, uh, Reggie White. Oh. So Jonathan Allen's not bad. For <laughs> no, Reggie White. Really yeah. Not. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> haven't added Bruce Smith, but I'm working on it. Again, there's okay. a lot of guys I'm catching up to. Um, right. The other guy who, t- who tested really well is Jaleel Johnson in terms of production stuff. Um, he's right. He's actually in between Gerald McCoy and Malcolm Brown from Texas. So very good area to be. You know, other guys, Aaron Donald, um, Pat Sims, Nick Fairley, Shreve Floyd, you know, guys like that. So not bad. You know, again, all these guys are pretty good areas of production. Dylan Bradley from Southern Miss also tested fairly well in terms of all those metrics, but nobody likes Dylan Bradley. So um, <laughs> that center John Toth Toth from mm-hmm. Kentucky got manhandled yeah. by Dylan Bradley. He had a senior bowl invite. Dylan Bradley didn't get nothing. Nothing. Well, he did get an invitation to which game was it? Exactly. Oh. Which game was it? Wait, was it NFLPA? Nope. Uh, was it college? Gonna, somebody invited him. Was somebody invited him, but it wasn't the, the big three. Or it was, no, now it was not. Right, it was so, not. No, you're right about They're that. probably going to no, turn him right into right. a fullback now, you know. Going to get Andre Monroe. But, yeah, Dylan Bradley, <laughs> really productive guy. I'm <laughs> just saying. Uh, oh, all Smart. Was hey. pretty well production wise. Big big fan of his. Okay. Yeah. Around oh, um, what range was he in terms of oh, the number and, and players? Smart, uh, yeah, Tim Bowens from Ole Miss. Okay. You remember that guy? Uh, Derek Wolf from Cincinnati. Jonathan Hankins from Ohio State. Kevin Vickerson from Michigan State. Daryl Russell yeah. from USC. Cameron Hayward oh, from yeah. Ohio State. People like that. Roy Miller from Texas. Oh, yeah. Who was actually a running back initially. Vicky of Grasson played fullback or running back. He was a terrific running back in high school. They recruited him initially as a running back, thinking they would move into fullback because he was like 255 pounds. He just kept getting bigger and bigger. Exactly. Yeah, I remember Roy Miller quite well. Okay. Yes, you got those guys. Other, Other players you also tested well. Charles Walker, but not from this season, from last season. Oh. So Charles okay. Walker from Oklahoma, the tackle that had a concussion, yeah. and I think was probably in right. the season. Right, and missed most, almost, well, he missed almost the entire season. Was it the first almost three? Almost the entire season. He played like the first three or four games or something. But A couple yeah, games. Shut down. Yeah. yeah. 
and then that was pretty much it. So I haven't actually gone back to watch the 2015 season, but it was pretty. It was good enough for at least for him to you know be in a pretty good area of production. But there's a lot of, again, there's a concussion stuff. It is worrisome, and the other sort of things. But um, and of course Jake uh, Rapuzzle or Rapuzzle from Purdue. Rapuzzle. Yep. Yeah. That no, that's a guy. That's a guy I've liked, but he seems like, and he has a like buzz coming into the season, but seems to have completely died away. Well, he plays at Purdue, so, <laughs> and he's another guy that the production was better the year before, so that might he plays at Purdue, and he was less productive than he was a year prior. Obviously, a bust, I guess, but, um, but yeah, I mean, he's one of the guys that's kind of like that, but again, fairly productive. Around guys like Mike Daniels from Iowa, Ellis Wims, you know, stuff like that. So not too bad. Uh, Patrick Gamble from Georgia Tech. Some of the guy who, who had fairly decent production. Larry Agon, uh Joby from Charlotte. Fairly decent production. And another guy that I don't know why he doesn't get enough love, but... Um, Noble uh, from West Virginia. Watch it, girl. Yeah, him. Yeah, he, he also had fairly decent um, uh, production as well. And then the end of the line. Again, these are guys that, yeah, you know, the Pro Bowlers stop here, right? That sort of thing. Jaron uh, <laughs> Jones, Mon Adams, and uh, Chunky Clement. Illinois. That's yeah, really these are it. all guys that just missed my top 100. Like Jones would probably be like around 104, 105 for me. These are the guys that just missed. There's a few guys that I debated a lot about whether or not they they cracked my top 100. But interestingly enough, those were all guys that were sort of in the you know, like I said, I'll put out a top 200 and they'll be in it. Right. But yes. Okay. And these are guys that were in the Rocky Bernard, uh, D'Amato Pico, Dustin Bannon, uh, you know, Linval Joseph. You know, I was Hood, a big fan of Linval Joseph like coming out. Had Linval on the show, actually, back in the yeah. day. And C.J. Wilson is uh, East Carolina teammate and his quarterback, Patrick Pickney, who I think is in coaching now, if memory serves you correctly. Have sort of an East Carolina theme on that show. But yes, okay. Got it. Right. So not bad. Um I mean the rest of these guys are the uh unless they're nose tackles, I'm wary about the guys. <laughs> okay. No again, no the difference between um nose tackle production and uh, you know, regular defensive tackle production is substantial, like I said, which is why I do evaluate them differently if they are a nose tackle. Um, you know, in terms of, I just make a notation. Um, but no tackles are above average productive, though. That's the only thing I would say is, you know, even though they are less productive, um, they're not below average productive. So even though no tackles, there is a difference. Um, it's not like, oh, they're all below average productive. Actually, the good ones are above average. It's just that um, there's a difference between no tackles and, uh, and the other positions, which makes sense, again, because you're a nose tackle, you know. You're only supposed to do so much. You know, you only, you know, you have jobs to do, you know. Linebackers to keep clean, stuff like that. So, so. 
but yeah. So like guys that are shorter in this area, I don't really think like Jerry Jeremiah Ledbetter. I don't really think is a nose tackle you know, from Arkansas. So I kind of worry about his production because of that. Reason, you know, guys like that are kind of Darius Hamilton from Rutgers, right? I don't think Darius Hamilton is a nose tackle. I kind of worry about a guy like that, I guess. So, so first of all, how do you differentiate? How do I put this: the way that a lot of these guys play defensive tackle nowadays, even the ones that are probably nose tackles, often don't play like them. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, when, I, when I think of what the job, at least of the classic zero technique, is, you know, the Ted Washingtons and the Sam Adams and the, I guess Vince Wilfork is sort of part of that now dying breed. Uh, they can give you some other extra stuff, but mostly they just make it impossible to do anything, you know, in your A and B gap. They basically just clog everything up in those two gaps simultaneously to the point where nothing good can happen for you in that area and you have to seek elsewhere for for something, you know, for, for good things, at least, from your right. offense. And every once in a while, if you foolishly single him up, he simply engulfs that poor single blocker and, you know, gets in the backfield and maybe makes a tackle for loss or maybe gets pressure or sometimes even sacks your quarterback and your quarterback's unwary enough. But a lot of these guys don't even play that. Even the ones who like who look like they should be true zero techniques, very often you see them swim moving and getting up field. Yeah, and, they don't play you know. like no tackle. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah. on there. <laughs> I get I get that. I mean the way I usually some of it's tape based, but usually it's their ability to take on double teams. Um a lot of times okay. is how I kinda you know, if they're able to make, if they're able to take on a double team the right way, um, and I see that consistently, and they have the size that I'm kind of looking for. That's kind of how I think about it from that kind of perspective. Um, if the, if they're a nose tackle or not, um, but yeah, it is definitely getting harder to do that because of the spread offenses. It makes nose tackles less existent. Like it's hard for them to exist. Politically speaking, you know, if you're in, you know, these spread offenses attacking you constantly. Um, but, and there also is a bit of, like, pornography in, in that, you know, you know it when you see it. Like, you know a nose tackle when you see it, too. So, but I, that's, the biggest one for me is just their ability to take on double teams. Um, which is one of my biggest issues with guys that, because I know some people call the USC defensive tackle, a nose tackle, and doesn't really take on double teams that well. So I don't really consider him to be a nose tackle. I mean, it's yeah, he's 360 pounds, but if you can't keep your linebackers clean and you're constantly trying to pass rush, you know, doing swim moves and stuff like that, that isn't really a nose tackle. That's a tree tech that just happens to be 360 pounds. So I do get that aspect of it, but a lot of times I'm just kind of looking for the ability to take on double teams and stuff like that. Same thing I look for at 3-4-D end as well is can they take on double teams and play with controlled leverage, you know, the ability, you know basically the ability to, to shed offensive linemen with ease. Um, 
consistently. That's kind of what I look for, too. So using the tests that we talked about, playing a double C correctly, doing all those things you just mentioned, who who does that in your class, actually? I mean, who do you who do you have? Huh. Good question. Um hmm. I don't really have anybody. In terms of like nose tackles, not a, there's no nobody. Mostly three techs and people like that, but no nose tackles. So that's the problem, right, Jim, that we can't really think of anybody who plays the game the way yeah. that Lodi Nasa or Vince Wilfork or Sam Adams or Ted Washington or Casey Hampton. We can't think of one of those guys. So right. Does, even the ones that line up at the quote-unquote position, you know, <laughs> you know, they're lining up over the center. They're playing nose physically. Well, like that's where they well, are. Yeah, I mean, it's like McDowell, you know, he plays zero tech, but he doesn't play with controlled leverage, so what's the point? So. <laughs> Which is why people project him to five technique. I think that's why they project Sure, but, not, but, but you, you have to play, yeah. but you have to take on double teams at five tech. It's not like... Also true. Yes. <laughs> it's not He's like not you getting move over. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. and not only that, I mean... I'm not saying that being taller gives you an advantage, although it does. I mean, there are instances where he, he shows, you know, slow move in particular is probably the most effective move to get shorter up at the lineman, but you have yes. that advantage going in to a certain extent. Um, moving him farther to the tackle that has, who's about as tall as you are, well, taller than you and has about the same amount of length is not going to improve the situation. You know, either you can take on double teams, play with controlled leverage, or you can't. He's a guy that can't. He's a guy that I really prefer at 4-3 DN, really, because um, that's where he's been able to do most of his stuff is at that position. It's where his swim move can be more effective. It's where all of this stuff is is based on playing in space. And putting him inside is not playing in space. No? <laughs> no, it's the opposite. Uh, the opposite. So, so, so you add that to it. You add the Michigan State stuff where I don't think Michigan State dumb. You know, like I don't think that they just were like, oh, yeah, and we're going to put him here and he's going to be successful. I think there's more stuff there about him, which makes me not like him even more, I guess. I don't know. So where huh. why, why are you putting him here? Why are you doing this with him? You know, stuff like that. I don't know. But that, that's the biggest thing to me is it's evident on film that he doesn't play with controlled leverage very well, and yet you continue to put him there, you know. And 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 it's not even effective because you only had 11 sacks, you know. Maybe that has – maybe there's something to that as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, it clearly didn't help to pump up their sack totals to move him where they moved him. So maybe he's sort of a Justin Tuck type, a guy that plays maybe some DN, some D tackle, you know, three technique, four eye, depending upon uh, matchups and situations. Maybe Stefan Tuitt. Yeah. Maybe. 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 And I wasn't wild about Tuitt coming out, so yeah. you know, I kind of missed on him. So maybe it's one of those kind of situations. Kinda. We can always hope. Kind of. You, you still see him play every day. But, yeah. Um, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I just have to get over it down. But, again, I just, for the most part, it's it's tough. I mean, the only nose tackle that there was a guy at Virginia who I don't think is in this class, he wasn't very good at nose tackle, but at least he played with, I'm just saying, like, he wasn't like great at it but he at least played with the type of intelligence that you're looking for um, and was able to take on some double teams but he was more undersized than usual you know play that position um but again i really don't know what you're saying i don't think vincent taylor's a nose tackle caleb brantley isn't a nose tackle you know three those are both three techs at least in my world yeah Darian Howard, maybe, from Red Virginia? I mean, he technically played Duratech, sort of. Yeah, not a lot of good things. You know. Okay, so <laughs> there we go. Um, Eddie Vanderdose, do you think he's a nose tackle? That's another guy he's that He's a body keep... of a nose tackle. Right, and I keep hearing people getting really excited about him. And once again, maybe it's me. I can't find it. I can't find the thing that makes me go, wow, I got to have that guy. Got the dog in him. That's the main thing. Whatever okay. that means. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, let's assume that that's true, but shouldn't the right. dog result in you making a whole bunch of plays? Mm, I mean, the get the, the okay, the guys who were with him production-wise and everything else like that. Um, Alan Branch from Michigan. Okay. He's Tyson good. Jackson. He's not. Ron Edwards from Texas A&M. Yeah, you know, yeah, he was And Bill Taylor from Baylor. Well, I kind of liked. Um, there's also Isaac Topaga. Oh, you know, nice little eight, nine-year career. Okay, you can't get mad So about that. five guys, five dudes. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I've seen a lot of Andy Venerdos. I think there's a lot of – I have a lot of problems with UCLA players, but sometimes I just think it's somewhat coaching too, but who knows. But I just feel like there's a lot of um, – they're asked to do certain things and told not to do certain things and, you know, they just don't know what to do at some point because they're told to do one thing and then they do that thing and then they lose football games and then they start to question what they're supposed to do. It doesn't happen all the time, but I felt like UCLA was one of those examples where there was a bit of that going on, but um, I don't know. I'm not the biggest Eddie Vanderdoes fan either. I'm just saying that uh, he wasn't exactly very productive, so. Yeah. Okay, man. So, 
Jumping over to offense. Now, what do you do? I mean, production is interesting. How do you – that's always been the thing that people have said about offensive line. There's no number. There's no metric. What do you do with offensive line, Jeff? What do I do with offensive linemen? Well, you just watch the numbers. That's what you do. Well, you know, I, I recently did a big old thing getting, diving into offensive linemen. Um to really get down to the nitty-gritty of the numbers. And what I found was it was, this, it was a similar situation to other positions where it wasn't necessarily about having great all-around athleticism as it was getting above average in one particular number. Um, so, like, at offensive tackle, it was about hitting a certain level of, of score with explosive lower body strength, um, Speed was a big thing with quality outcomes. Um, you know, all all pro, multiple, all multiple all pro tackles since 1996 had at least 85.87 on a speed score um, or higher. So, and we're talking about all of them. Walter Jones is all those people. You know, um, you could think of. They all had really really high speed scores. Um, flexibility wasn't the Biggest deal in the world, but you definitely had work needed to be above average for all prototypes. And the same thing goes with explosiveness. Um, so, and for the big one, like this is actually the biggest one, it was that 100% of multiple all pro and pro bowl OT since 1996 um, had at least a athleticism score of 78.42 or higher, meaning that they had to have at least one athleticism score, whether it was explosiveness, speed, or flexibility, one of those things had to be 78.42 or higher um, in terms of their scores or a combination of those. So for the most part, to be a great offensive lineman, you have to be athletic in at least one aspect, whether that's explosiveness, whether that's speed, or whether that's flexibility. Um, You have to have at least one of those qualities to be really, really great at that position. Um, So, I mean, that's how I kind of look at offensive alignment and this is at every position too this is at guard center it's just that the diff- you know it's just there are somewhat differences uh between those positions because they're different you know they're different positions you know so at guard there's a little bit more of an emphasis on uh flexibility than at tackle for example right okay so you didn't devise some sort of Coburn offensive. No, because optimize. Okay. Because you really, because you really have to think about it. I believe when it comes to offensive line evaluation, with, with there there are numbers to it, but you have to think about it in terms of the scheme, and you have to think about it in terms of like how they fit in that scheme. Um, so, if you're talking about like a ZBS tackle. You don't necessarily need them to be fast, but you do need them to be explosive, and you do need them to be flexible to be able to maintain leverage. But you don't necessarily – now I sound kind of funny. But what I'm saying is is that when it comes to offensive linemen, um, it's really about finding a guy that has a certain type of athletic skill set and seeing if that skill set fits in your scheme best. For the most part, though, flexibility works in every single scheme. If you have a guy that's flexible, who can maintain leverage, 
if you're a ZBS scheme, if you're a power scheme, if you have a guy that, that is flexible enough to maintain leverage, it doesn't really matter what scheme he's in. But the big things that I saw when looking and comparing athleticism traits is that ZBS is more of an emphasis on explosiveness, vertical broad jump type things, and power schemes is more emphasis on speed, you know, the fast, being fast. And again, when you think about power schemes, getting your guards out, pulling your guards, uh, getting guys out in space, doing the things that Travis Kelsey was talking about, you know, getting those big plays where you get offensive linemen out in space and hitting to the second level and stuff like that. A lot of that has to do with being fast enough to do those types of things. Um, so, and you don't need to have offenses that do that, but it you do kind of see a lot like a cornerback that's fast. You, you can be more flexible in terms of the types of uh, uh, plays and the types of things that you can do. When you have a guy who can pretty much do everything, offensive line-wise, you can kind of do everything. You, you, you don't have to limit your scheme to certain things. So, for example, take the Raiders, right? The Raiders have two tackles that are bad for the most part. Donald Penn's injured, so they had Austin Howard and Minlake Watson. Those guys are bad. They have to get rid of the football very quickly as a result of having those tackles. So you don't really have many opportunities to make huge plays down the field or as often because of how fast you have to get rid of the football. But if you have offensive linemen that are more flexible and more explosive and faster, you're able to have plays develop a little bit longer. You're able to, to expand the types of plays that you can make a little bit more. You don't have to have a, uh, a quarterback who, you know, has to scramble all the time. So, that's the only thing I'd really say about offensive linemen is, is there's a lot of different intricacies to it, but the big thing is the scheme they're in and seeing if their athleticism traits fit that scheme. Okay. And we will begin, I guess, or end, at least amongst the, the player metrical part of these methods. Obviously, with the, you know your wide receivers, running backs, quarterbacks. So I guess tight end. Yeah, there's room moist for tight end. So I guess we'll start with tight end. Uh, when uh, probably about a, less than a year into you and I meeting, you talked about tight end position being one that was very much an outlier in the kind of work you do, but you'd found some thresholds and some other things. And so just sort of in terms of those quote-unquote skill positions, those ball-handling positions, tight end, wide receiver, quarterback, running back. Similar to a question I guess you just answered, how do you, uh, uh, when you break down the tape, how do you, because it was a time when fullbacks were, you know, fullbacks led the league in rushing. I mean, John Henry Johnson was a fullback. Jim Brown was a fullback. Sam Bam Cunningham is still, I think, the leading rusher in the history of the Patriots franchise from the fullback position. But how do you do that? How do you get the numbers let me put that differently. Have you changed anything, I guess, in terms of how you look at the tight end position based on some of the things you learned in the past couple of years? Not necessarily. The only thing I – I always was under the assumption that tight end was a position where if you have the physical characteristics and the athletic characteristics, 
and you play basketball. Like if you if you have these sort of things, the Jimmy Grahams, you know, the Antonio Gates, the stuff like that. If you have those physical characteristics and stuff like that, then you could turn into an elite tight end. After doing all the historical data stuff, I'm starting to see that that's really more of a modern phenomenon. Like it's something that really didn't happen that much over the last 60 plus years. Um, so I don't think that that's something you should bank on. You know, guys have to have a certain amount of production um, at the tight end position. Um, they have to have, they definitely need to have athletic qualities. And it's not to say that if a guy has those athletic and physical characteristics that I'm just going to ignore them. But I do think that the risk is a lot higher than people realize if you have a guy who wasn't productive at all, like was productive, but just happens to have some athletic traits. I don't think that that's always going to work out for you. Like that's something that I think um, is a bigger risk than people realize. You know, just because Jimmy Graham worked out doesn't mean like there's only one Jimmy Graham, you know, like there's not five Jimmy Grahams in the last 60 years. There's only one Jimmy Graham. So, uh, I, you know, and one Antonio Gates. So it's something that's kind of a modern phenomenon. And as a result, I, I would caution people in that sort of thinking, like you can just take an athlete and turn them into a great tight end when that really is a lot less likely when you look at the long-term data. Okay. Well, certainly can. So that's so the quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers. I assume for all running backs, it's once again threshold to deal with. Is it tailbacks and tailbacks? Uh, touchdowns are sort of removed because they tend to obscure rather than obstruct. But I'm assuming the other quarterbacks are all, you know. Uh, if not overseas, then up north, down south, that kind of thing? Oh, with what? What was that, Jim? Oh, with uh, what, what were you asking exactly? Oh, I was saying we've gotten to the ball handling positions, right? Tight end. Right, tight end, wide receiver, receiver, running back, yeah. Running back, yeah, yeah. So I was saying who are or what what should an elite one of those look like and right what who are the ones that most resemble if anyone uh those elite tight ends from you know who who at least stacks up or measures gets close at least to that right well when it comes to um uh elite tight ends uh you know guys that are multiple all pro guys um what you're looking for is a similar thing as MSA. Again, you know, market shares, strength of schedule, age, um, stuff. And with there, you're looking for at least a 70 or better in terms of score um, in this class. And that's where you get guys like Wesley Walls, Steve Jordan, Todd Christensen, uh, Keith Jackson for Oklahoma, Tony Gonzalez, Charlie Sanders, Dave Casper, Rob Gronkowski, Mickey Schuler, John Mackey, Jason Witt, Nazi Newsom, Kellen, like those guys, Kellen Winslow, not junior, but senior. Um, all those guys were Russ Francis, you know, Frank Wycheck. So a lot of those guys. In this class in particular, 
Jake Butt is the highest out of the bunch. Um, he's around guys like Martellus Bennett, Zach Ertz, in terms of, uh, you know, Kyle Rudolph, um, those types of guys. Uh, Evan Ingram is kind of around uh, Keith Jackson, Anthony Fasano, who's a little bit lower down the list. Uh, David uh, Njoku from Miami is kind of around C.J. Fedorowicz. Same thing with Jordan Leggett, Junu Smith. And O.J. Howard is uh, with uh, Austin Hooper, Troy Drayton, you know, people like that. So, um, But for the most part, that's – at the tight end position, you know, you're looking for guys who at least are 70 or higher in terms of that score, if you will, of uh, production and the type of schedule they face. Okay, so do you do anything with the placekickers, the punters, placekickers, uh, term, uh, term, term, uh, what do you call it? The, you know, the guys get all going, Latvia, and <laughs> I mean, just who have been the best big men you've seen growing up? Um, so punchers, placekickers are so, is it just there's so few usable statistics or what is it with that?
So that brings us to, you know, there's a sort of stacking in. So obviously it's easier for players who are going to get down because you, you know, you find out what it is that might, I mean, some teams and some, if I were to start with the things that scare you first. Were there any other positions or any other numbers that you discovered that are compelling or interesting?
So, we figured out to some extent who the Bruce Smith types might be. Uh-huh. Or sailors. Smith's tendencies. Tendencies.
And using the numbers you use for punishment place scares, who merits uh, talk, who merits some discussion?
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.